Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. All right, Kenna. Today, I would like to start the episode by asking you. This is a hard one. Okay. Okay, do you know anybody under the age of 50 who you think has never in their entire life done an illegal drug? Yes, I do. Really? Who is it? You don't have to say their name. You can describe them. Uh, my friend, he is um, one of my best friends. He is uh, Gen X. He's about 10 years older than me, and he has never done drugs in his life. Wow. And he uh, tried a, he tried a Zima one time in the 90s. Oh, the like light clear beer. Yeah. And it gave him a headache and he's like, never again. And he has been completely straight edge ever since, unless you count, he drinks a lot of coffee. Oh, okay. That's interesting. But that's legal. It is legal. It's not an illegal drug. Um, that's pretty good that you were able to conjure that up. I was really racking my brain, and I was even going through all the straight-edge people I knew. But the thing is, he is close to 50. He is close. Because he's ten, he's almost 10 years older than me. I think he's 8 years older than me, 9 years older. But I still think Gen X, I would expect them to have done an illegal drug. He never has. And you know what? He's one of those people who just, like, those rare people who just, like, he's just so imaginative he just always makes his own fun and um he doesn't like bars he likes going out and doing uh like i would say like impish stuff impish stuff? <laughs> okay impish sounds like, what does that mean? okay it's so funny because he doesn't seem like okay you know how we were talking about there's the guy from slc punk who looks the most normal yes but is actually like the most punk mm-hmm. where he like seems so nice and sweet but he's like lighting off firecrackers he's like he's like hey i found these firecrackers let's go behind the alley and set them off okay i see he's definitely like supplementing the rush of drug use with other non-drug entities yeah like but i think that what we consider mostly healthy healthy coping mechanisms um and playing, benign and playing music and okay. uh but just he has a lot of energy Interesting. Okay, well, that's still pretty good that you came up with someone because I, even when I went through all the people I knew who were straight edge, eventually they did drugs or first they did drugs. Yeah, um, he, wait, I, oh, wait, uh, I do know another person who also has never done a drug or alcohol in their life. And they, wow. are, they are still a hardcore straight edge vegan nailed to the X. Wow. See, it's rare. I just think it's very. But it's, he's it's like rare. very different. He was not fun, right? <laughs> and never, never tried. He was from the Ian Mackay school of. Uh, yeah, I think more from sobriety. the. Um, oh gosh, what's the? What are the the? There's like another uh, straight edge hardcore band that is like not fun, and they like beat people up. Oh, it's it's hate edge as a genre. It's a genre called hate edge, and it's like yeah, if you're not straight edge, we will with baseball bats beat yeah, you up. Yeah, and you're just like. So violence is the answer? Yes. They're very violent. They're very repressed. I remember this. And I also remember growing up when we did in the early, early 2000s, like 2000 to 2005 maybe, there was a website called BreakingEdge.com. Do you remember this? Oh, no, but he probably does. Oh, yeah. You would report someone if you saw them breaking edge and you'd put them on the website and then other straight edge people in your town would be like, fuck you. And then they'd like all ostracize you or beat you up. It was like um, very... It was very huge in the hardcore scene. Yeah, I think that um, 
Oh, yeah, it's so funny that I know a fun person who's just like, never wanted to do an illegal drug. I don't need it because I just have too much fun. And the other one who is just like, fuck illegal drugs. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that he did it not because of uh, he already was having fun. I think it he actually had a compulsion to not do drugs. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to describe it. Like, and I don't want to like... Like a purity compulsion. Yes. No, that makes sense to me as a person with obsessive compulsive disorder. He, he I can also understand had, that. He also had OC, like severe OCD. Yes. No, um, that makes sense to me. Um, whereas like he also had a fear of ever being um, inebriated. Yes. Like even drinking too much coffee. I yes. Think, was like a fear of his. No, that totally makes sense. I feel like if I think about it, there are people that I know who the only drug they've done is, like, they've smoked weed and they've never done anything else. Um, you know, we live in California and here That's California sober. Yeah, we call that California sober. <laughs> and you just smoke weed, you're California sober. That is what we call it. Um, yeah, here recreational, like, marijuana use by adults, it became fully legal in 2016. But before that, obviously, it was illegal, which meant that a lot of people were doing illegal drugs every single time they smoked pot or, like, made weed brownies, which is definitely skewing the data in my personal life. Um, But it's still mind-blowing and shocking to think that, like, just smoking weed means you're an illegal drug user. Technically, it is a federal, uh, against federal law. Right, right. Um, You know, and here in California, obviously, now... You know, it's not illegal, but in 31 states, it's still considered an illegal drug at a recreational level. Yeah, isn't it the biggest one, like New York, or did they just legalize it? Oh, I'm not sure if New York is legal or not. For a long time, it was still illegal. I think it is legal. I think last time I went, it was legal. Okay. I could have made that up, but I, I, I feel I feel 51% sure it's legal. Low, a low, a low sure. Me being from Colorado, I've just assumed it's been legal everywhere the for time. a lo- long fucking time. Yeah. Um, okay, I have a question for you, actually. As a Coloradan, you might be pretty good at this. Like, if you had to guess what the top three most popular drugs are in the United States, what do you think they would be? Probably weed, uh, cocaine, and meth. Okay, I feel like those are pretty good guesses. Um, Number one is weed. Yeah, around 18% of Americans in a 2020 study admitted to having used marijuana in the past year. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about it, you're like, oh, that's almost one in five people just in the past year alone. Yeah. So that's that's pretty, that's a lot of people. Okay, I feel like drugs have their different phases. So I feel like now maybe different drugs are popular like maybe more like mushrooms and ketamine are on the list yes rather than but i'd say a consistent one would probably be cocaine okay this is anecdotally yes yes no for sure (laughs) so the second one is actually like opioids pain medication oh that makes sense yeah and this made sense to me too because we did have an opioid epidemic here in the united states and this includes things like oxycodone which would be like oxycontin or percocet didn't even think about pills i just was like oh like heroin where it's just like because i'm just like oh well you're prescribed opiates but i'm like a I'm a bunch of people, like, if you're not prescribed a pill and you take it, that's illegal. That is illegal, yeah. Um, Also, it includes hydrocodone, things like Vicodin, codeine, morphine, methadone, and fentanyl. Ooh. And that's in, like, everything. And in that same 2020 survey, over 3% of people polled admitted to having using uh, opioids in the past year. Wow. Well, they prescribed, like, because after I had back surgery, they just gave me Oxycontin. 
I feel I, like it, you have the look where people will give you prescription drugs. They will just give me drugs. You look pure. Nobody will prescribe me drugs. And even if I need I them. don't want them. Like, every time they give me stuff, I never use it to the end because, like, they just make me, like, narcotics make me feel terrible. Like, only, I just stick to ibuprofen. <laughs> yeah, the only drug I've ever been prescribed that I was like, I would take this every fucking day isn't even the one you'd expect. It's just the anti-nausea medication. Prescription strength anti-nausea medication. Because of my anxiety disorder, I'm nauseous constantly. Everything that happens in my body manifests through nausea. Mm. So when they gave me that, I was like, this is the good shit. And I remember the nurse being like, this is not a painkiller. And I was like, I know. I'm just nauseous all the time. Wow. I know. Yeah, they get, I actually have a prescription for that because I get migraines. Oh, it's so good. Okay. So then the third one, I think you were actually kind of on the nose with this third one. It is hallucinogenics, which is a pretty mm. broad category. Um, but that's around two and a half percent of people polled in 2020 said they'd done a hallucinogenic drug in the past year. Yeah, especially because I think, like, you know, there's all the stuff. Remember when, like, Joe Rogan got into, like, DMT and shit? No, I know nothing about Joe Rogan. I only recently realized he was the guy from that TV show Fear Factor, like, yesterday, like, last year. What? You didn't know that? No, I almost and called it radio. yesteryear. Also, yesteryear. And the man show. I liked news radio. I mean, the man show was hot garbage, but. I don't think I saw the man show. He, yeah, it, uh, it just whatever you would think from a show about men in the 90s. It, I, Adam Carolla was in it. Was it, like, sketch comedy or, like... It was kind of sketch com... I think it was, like, skits. Yeah, I think it was sketch comedy. I don't remember a lot, but they had a, a, a basically, like, one of every time at, at the closing credits, they had... Uh, girls in skirts jumping on trampolines. Oh, I remember this. Oh, it must have played right before something I watched on TV because I would always tune in to watch something and the end would be girls in skirts jumping on trampolines. Yeah. <gasps> I, I know. I just put that together. Which I guess to me it's like, it's only for men? Yeah, or gay women or people who like trampolines. I like trampolines. I was just always like, damn, I want to jump on a trampoline. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, that's fucked up where my brain goes. I'm like, God, I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous of that trampoline. I want to be high on anti-nausea medication jumping on a trampoline. That does sound really fun. Right? Okay, so the hallucinogenic category, it's pretty big. It, it, it includes things like acid, obviously. It includes, like, MDMA and, like, you know, growing up, we used to call that ecstasy. And now people call it molly or, you know, also, like, mushrooms, uh, ayahuasca, and, yeah, DMT. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I feel like in, like... Just since in the past, like, 10 years, I've just seen an explosion of people doing, like, a hallucinogenics as, like, I'm using air quotes, like, medicinally. Yes. Or even, like, ketamine, which I don't know if is a hallucinogenic or not. I Ketamine's like not a hallucinogenic, but what's interesting about the hallucinogenics is, have you noticed people are microdosing mushrooms more now? Yeah, where it's just, like, they're, like, it's about, like, my mental health, or it's about, like, self-care rather than, like, getting fucked up. Or, like, yes. Ketamine's or, like, like that going too. on, like, a trip, which is, like, uh, interesting to me because I feel like, too, like, like, right after I moved from Portland, it seemed like every, like, person I met, I was like, oh yeah, so-and-so did ayahuasca, and now they're doing it, and changed their life, and I'm like, you needed to do ayahuasca to do that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that when it's used, like, within the context of, like, a cultural and spiritual practice, it's amazing, but whenever white people are just like, yeah, I did ayahuasca in the desert, I'm like, oh, I feel like this is, like, 
a misuse of something that some cultures consider very important. I it just, just feels weird to me. It just seemed like, uh, so, yeah, I think it was just, to me, I was just like, huh? I was just very confused. But it did seem that definitely ayahuasca is on the radar now. Yeah. As well as, like, yeah, people microdosing mushrooms not to get, like, not to be like, woo, like, I'm seeing the dead. I'm taking mushrooms. Right. It's like, like, I, like... You hear of, like, Silicon Valley people, like, microdosing, like, acid or mushrooms to be, like, more productive. Yeah, actually, there was this, like, tech podcast that I listened to once where they microdosed LSD, I think, and recorded its effects for, like, a week. But by the end of the week, they were pretty fucking high, just at work. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, I was so productive. (laughs) But they weren't at all. And one guy's boss came in and he was like, I love you. And he like, they recorded themselves the whole time they were doing this. So yeah, you hear him just be like, I love you. And his boss is like, okay. (laughs) So Yeah, of course you're going to love going to work when you're fucking high. Yeah, you're high on LSD the whole time. But imagine having a fucking bad trip at work, man. No, I don't want that. Well, one of them did kind of have a bad trip by the end of it. And they were like, we can't do this anymore. We can't do this anymore. And it was, I would not want to be in an altered state doing like the majority of my job and my job doesn't even involve heavy machinery yeah no i think it would be a challenge for sure so the other like notable drugs that showed up were a little more specifically categorized um like the prevalent drugs people use in the united states and some of them are other ones that you mentioned so nearly two percent of americans admitted uh to using cocaine in the past year which is pretty big but also uh they lumped it in with meth. So they were like, cocaine or meth? And 2% of people were like, yeah, I didn't want one of those. So just like I feel, okay, I'm just going to say that people who, it, I don't know this for sure. I'm just going to, this is all anecdotal, you know, mm-hmm. in case my mom is listening. Okay. It's hypothetical. <laughs> a hypothetical. I would say people who do coke are different than people who do meth. Well, it's social. It, there's a class-based element. Yeah, that's it. the thing. Mm-hmm. It's like. I feel like cocaine, you think of the 80s. You think of, like, uh, what's that? Like, Wolf of Wall Street, which I actually haven't seen. But I think of, like, 80s, like, bankers, oh, that was all Oh, but yeah. I think of, like, or, like, um, you know, disco. Like, yeah, like I mean, doing cocaine, like, dancing. Whereas, like, meth is, uh, I think of that movie Spun. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah, it's definitely a class-based thing. Um, I actually had a boyfriend who I've dated a lot of people who have drug addiction issues and I had a boyfriend for a long time who was a drug addict and I remember he came to San Francisco he had been using a lot of cocaine and then in the middle of the night he was like I gotta I gotta go and he left my apartment and he walked to the tenderloin and he came back and I was like what did you do and he's like I just I just got some crack and I was like I don't feel like it's healthy or safe for you to be doing crack and he was like what's the difference between me doing crack cocaine and regular cocaine and I was like I really don't no. And he's like, I feel like you're just being classist. And I was like, I am. And he was yes. totally right. It's a class-based thing. And it's the same thing with cocaine and methamphetamines. But sometimes methamphetamines is like marketed or sold differently in a way that feels more upper crust. Like it's called a different name. It's kind of, you know, positioned as being a little different. And there can be like different classes within meth use. But being from Fresno, obviously, meth capital of the United States, um, actually, uh, maybe the world. Yeah, Canyon City, Colorado was the meth capital of Colorado. Okay, well, mine's like the big meth capital. <laughs> Do you like it? Yeah, we're, we're Tweak Central where I'm from. No, it's, it's fine. Um, yeah, so I feel like it's like probably like 2% of Americans are using cocaine, 1% of Americans are using meth, and there's some crossover. 
Um, then there's also heroin. That's 0.3% of Americans said that they had done heroin in the past year. And crack cocaine specifically, that was around 0.2% of Americans. Um, and it is worth noting that the use of cocaine and meth are both on the decline. But the use of things like um, like weed and like ketamine, that's up, like you kind of talked about. Yeah, I feel like uh, weed, though, seems kind of like... Like, to me, weed is, like, way less powerful than booze. Like, to me... I think me- it depends on how you're doing it. Because, like, I take edibles. That's true. That is true. Like, yeah. Like, I have accidentally gone to space on one edible. And yes. I was, I was like, I don't know how to talk anymore. <laughs> yes. I have several good edible stories. Um, most of them involve me realizing I'm too high and trying to instantly be as responsible as possible. But one of the stories I took an edible and I was like I'm gonna go home it hasn't kicked in while I was driving it apparently kicked in and I instantly was like it is unsafe for me to be in a vehicle so I just exited my car but I left my car in the middle of a lane in the middle of the night here in Los Angeles with the door open and the key in the ignition and walked home because it was like not safe for me to drive it anymore because I was high which I'm proud of Madeline for being like nope I'm high get out of the car don't operate the vehicle but I'm just like this is like such like an I'm 22 story you know so then I didn't remember that it happened and I spent all weekend looking for my car and I lived in Koreatown and I was like, oh, my car must have got towed. So I finally called a tow number and they were like, what car is it? And I was like, you know, like a, like a 1998 Volvo. It's black. It's got a spoiler. And they were like, oh yeah, we have your car. You just left it in the middle of like Olympic Boulevard, like in a, the left lane, not even on the side of the road with the doors open and the key in it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I took an edible and I probably didn't want to drive high. And they were like cracking up laughing. And I'm like, well, at least I was responsible, you know. But yeah, that's the thing. It can sneak up on you. You can be like, I just did a little. Like one time I did like a five milligram edible before bed, which usually is nothing. But for some reason, this one was extra potent. And next thing you know, I'm looking at my boyfriend with Great British Baking Show on in the background going, are they speaking English? And he's like, yeah, they're kind of speaking the most English. And I'm like, bah! Like just losing it. So, you know, it can sneak up on you the potency of weed yeah i will say my mind has been like hellraisered by (laughs) yeah by an animal but also like i just i do think that like i know this isn't you know there's always exceptions to the rule but you know like like i feel like weed doesn't make people angry and booze sometimes can make people real angry i could see that for sure Okay, so another thing that struck me while I was, like, looking into this is that I always get really self-conscious about what street slang I'm using for certain drugs. I'm like, is this is this what people are calling it? Like, I don't want to sound like a cop or a nerd or some shit, you know? So I actually looked this up just for myself, but it was so entertaining. I'm like, I have to share this. Um, I looked up what people in different places call different drugs. Okay. So um, I have to share. All right. So, like, kind of what do you call marijuana? Weed. Weed. All right. Yeah. I say weed too. And I feel like maybe I grew up saying pot though also when I was younger, but maybe pot's like more of a Gen X thing and they were the cool older kids to us. So we like copied them when we were young. Did you ever say pot? Yeah. You know, I feel like there's a shift. Like, yeah, yeah. maybe like younger you'd say pot or people would like my parents age say dope. Oh, okay. So I was going to ask about this um, because that always confused me when people called weed dope because to me, dope's heroin. To me, dope is heroin. Yeah, dope is heroin. Um, But people in Texas, Florida, Alabama, and a few other states 
one of the most common things they call marijuana besides weed or pot is dope. I would be so confused because if someone was like, where can I get dope? I'd be like, I don't know. I know where you can get weed though. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Oregon, do you know what the most common slang is for marijuana besides weed and pot? Grass? It's bud. Oh, yes. Did they say bud there? You lived there. Yeah, bud for sure. Um, I had a boyfriend from Oregon though and he did, he did call it grass. So that's funny that you said that. So that must be pretty common there, too. Because I was always like, grass? Who fucking says that? What are you, like, a baby boomer? Like, it's yeah. not Woodstock. Yeah. Do you like it? Like, you know how there's the posters that are all the different names for weed? It's like, bud, grass, wacky tobacco. Yes. That's what my dad calls it. Okay, wait. Do you know what they call it in Colorado? Um, It's weed? No, it's so much worse than that. No, no it's beside weed or pot. It's weed pot grass um smoke it's ganja oh god yes That's the most common i one. will ganja. say yeah i know why do you i just feel like uh there's this like element of hippie in colorado that's like people want to be like Rastafarian and oh, have it's threads. like appropriative. It's like white appropriation, but like a black weed culture. But you're white from Colorado. But yes. it is. It, I'm. I'm telling you, it's very prevalent there. Yeah, I believe it. I believe that. It doesn't take much convincing. Um, honestly. But like, yeah, for yeah, there's a weird like yeah. Anytime, yeah, that yeah, ganja for sure. Ganja. Okay, and then also in Arizona, the most popular term they use besides weed or pot is Mary Jane like a 90s stoner comedy Whoa. yeah they're out there just saying that so I thought like you know this is very interesting so I, I have more because it's so interesting to me I did um I did LSD next I did LSD next oh. what okay so what do you usually call LSD? acid acid yeah acid um but in California people also call it do you know what they call it here uh-uh. Lucy Lucy in the sky with diamonds Lucy oh okay I definitely growing up people called it lucy okay i never I heard that. that i've only heard acid okay so in california and texas we're the ones that say lucy um but there's another term for it that's really popular like everywhere else in the united states and it's just sid like a guy's name i had never what? heard of this before yeah, oh acid yes yeah, sid acid and then Utah, um, they win, and I, I am not convinced this is real. So someone from Utah, you need to confirm this for me because I refuse to believe it's real because it's too beautiful. Uh, they call acid, LSD, electric Kool-Aid. Can that be real? I don't know. I've only hung out in Utah once, and my band was supposed to play a show uh, with a band that had members of Bratmobile in it. Oh, that's but cool. But the show got canceled, so we were supposed to play in this, like, karaoke bar parking lot because we played outside of our vans in bikinis with fireworks, but the police shut it down before we even started. But um, it seems like everyone there um, uh, did not do drugs. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why they're calling it Electric Kool-Aid. I still do think it's a great name. 10 out of 10. I support the name. Um, okay, so then that brings me to heroin. Like, Kenna, what do you call heroin? Uh, heroin or dope or, let's see, heroin, dope, horse? Yes, okay, so, all right, being from California, if we, we usually call it heroin, um, we also call it dope. In Oregon, they call it H, and I have some friends from, uh, from Oregon who definitely called it H. Um, and then horse though, yes, I've heard people call it horse. I've heard people call it junk. I've heard people call it smack. Oh, junk smack. Yes, junk smack. not super common, but I have heard those before. 
Um, but the one that really stood out to me is what they sometimes call it in Florida, which is boy. Weird. B-O-Y, just boy. Interesting. I mean, I, I, okay, I, I feel really, I feel I've been very judgmental on this episode. On the names. Just on everything where I'm just, if you, you know, if you want to do ayahuasca, that's fine. Uh, you know. I do feel like that's supposed to be like a closed ceremonial practice I for some people. I don't know anything about it. It just seemed like a weird thing to pop up. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I could be wrong about it being a closed ceremonial practice. That's also a thing I would be interested also, in. I want to know, is it a closed ceremonial practice? And also, is Utah really calling acid electrically? These are <laughs> and, the things I know. And Florida calling people boy. And yes. then me with Colorado being like, just judging the Coloradans. I mean, I think that's okay. Those are your people. You're allowed to do that. Um, all right, so then the next one that I <laughs> looked at was cocaine. So what do we usually call cocaine? Coke. Coke, that's what we call it. You call it Coke, right. Uh, or blow. Blow, yeah. Like the movie. Yeah, but another thing that people apparently call it in California, which I'm like, I have never heard anybody call it this in California my whole life, was flake. I have never that heard that. That doesn't sound real. I'm like, is this real? How that's can like, this be real? Uh, what's in Mean Girls? Like, you're trying to make... Fetch happen? Fetch happen? Yeah, they're trying to make flake happen. But I'm like, it, maybe it's like a NorCal thing or like a college town thing or like a, a I live in the woods thing, but I've never heard that in my maybe life. Maybe like, what do you, what do you, a key? Like a key bump? Like a bump? Yeah. Like yeah. Like people like, oh, key. Like, yeah. oh, getting, getting a key. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, also, in Oregon, they apparently call it yayo sometimes. I've actually heard this one before. Yayo. Some people in San Francisco called it yayo, too. I've never heard that, but okay. I believe it. So then MDMA, that takes on lots of forms, right? Like, we used to have ecstasy, and we called it X back in the day. Then it became E. And uh, now if you're taking MDMA, it's Molly. And then there's also moon rocks, but that gets confusing to me because apparently there's some weed thing called moon rocks too, but I always knew moon rocks to just be hyper-concentrated levels of MDMA. Like, one time I licked moon rocks off some guy named Bear's hand at a party in the desert, and I was high for a week straight. And we called, being on MDMA, we call it rolling, right? But apparently some people in, like, Texas, Utah, Arizona, they call ecstasy or MDMA vitamin E, which is so embarrassing to me. Mm, I think that's kind of cool. Oh, you like it? <laughs> Just hook me up with some vitamin E. <laughs> Just like I called Dick vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the singer, the pop star from the late 90s, vitamin C. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then the next one was methamphetamine, which we just call meth, right? Meth or tweak. Yes. Uh, I feel like there's another one. There is. Okay, so here in California, we definitely say tweak a lot. Ice? Yeah, people say ice. Um, You know... Being from Fresno, math capital of the world, we definitely said tweak most of the time, and people who were high on math were tweaking. Yeah, we called people who did math tweakers. Tweakers, yeah. If you're tweaking, you're a tweaker. Yeah, definitely, 100%. Um, but also some people called it speed or crank. Oh, yeah, speed. Right, speed. Crank. And I think, like, speed, that's one of the things I was thinking of where I'm like, oh, that's kind of like the higher-end marketing. That's like the middle-class marketing of math is, like, you're doing speed. You're, like, middle-class, maybe a college kid – and that's actually what I, it's so funny. That's actually what we called it when I was young was speed. Yes. Okay. So I feel like tweak is the more like you're broke and you're on the street and you're doing tweak, but then speed is what like respectable middle-class people do when they do math. I but feel it's the same like thing. just because like you, I feel like there was like different types of it and people would call it different stuff. And that there was like, I think this stuff called like was it shatter or something? Shatter, yeah. Was shatter meth though? I thought shatter was. A I thought it thing. was like a. I thought it was like a. I, some There's sort of, shard. Maybe. That was in Oregon and Texas. People 
Duchard. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, that's how I felt about MDMA. I'm like, I don't think that, like, ecstasy and Molly and Moon Rocks are all the same thing. Because, like, growing up, I always had this colloquial understanding that when I was doing they were different things. We need to, like, you know how, like, they have, like, they interview people, like, behind, like, uh, uh, anonymous. We just need to anonymously interview a drug dealer and be like, what do you call it? Yeah, like, I want to know. Okay, so, yeah, then next is Xanax. And Kenna, what would you call Xanax? Zans. Okay. A bar? A bar, yeah. Bar, Zanny, Zans, for sure. That's what I definitely called it. Um, But apparently they're trying to tell me on the internet that in Oregon people call it Hulk. Is this real? Can you confirm this as a former Oregonian? Mm. Hulk. Mm. No. Okay, well, apparently a lot of states people are out here calling Xanax Hulk. I don't – I mean, I don't really – do a lot of drugs so I don't I don't know this stuff I only know it from like you know like friends of friends and media and media or like you know when you like I feel like if you're like going like nightlife you just hear people doing it or like people around even if you're not so you're just like oh you just pick it up but yes I don't really know like well, that's the thing. It's, like, dra- drugs are, like, ingrained in our culture. Like, it's yeah, a part of really our culture. Are. Like, especially if you go if you go out at night at all, if you're, like, in a scene that's around music, you will encounter it. Yeah, it's pretty common. Um, and in 2019, more than 138 million Americans over the age of 12 said that they had used illicit drugs at least once in their lifetime. And, you know, the whole population of the United States over the age of 12 is, like, 305 million people. So that's, like, 45% at least. And when people conduct polls, they usually find that roughly half of people polled admit to having used drugs at least once in their life, illegal drugs. So that's, again, just the people who admit to it. Like, some people aren't going to want to incriminate themselves, right? So they're not going to be like, yeah, I'm using drugs all the time. They're going to be like, like, no, who are you, a cop? Get away from me. Yeah, if, like, my mom is standing there, like, while I'm answering, I'll be like, no, I have never, never never done one drug I have not seen a drug. I don't know. Yeah. What is, what is weed? What is drug? Actually, no. My mom lives in Colorado. She's like, I got this. You can take CBD. Oh, I love that parents are now all into CBD. Yeah. That's like She's a very like, I got funny this thing. CBD coffee. And I'm like, I feel like that defeats the point of coffee. Right. You're like. I want to be jacked. Yeah. Yeah. It's like speedball light. A- speedball extra light. I want to be awake. Yeah. No calm here. Well, okay. So for most people, drug use is pretty common and casual and it's just like integrated into your normal life right like 70 percent of people currently using illicit drugs are fully employed they're what like boomers would call like contributing members of society whatever that means right and only 10 percent of american adults have had what's called a drug use disorder at some point in their lives like an addiction issue compared to like 50 percent of americans who've done drugs so one in five people will have some sort of substance abuse issue at some point and you know on my part, in my lifetime, I've definitely smoked weed, uh, edibles. I currently take edibles to manage my anxiety before bedtime pretty regularly. Most nights I take edibles. I've also taken Xanax without a prescription. That was after my partner died. My friends gave me Xanax so I could sleep because I couldn't sleep. Um, I've taken Adderall recreationally, which is funny now that I know I have ADHD and would probably just benefit from having an Adderall prescription. Yeah. Uh, I've done cocaine, ecstasy, molly, any variation of MDMA you can think of. I've taken mushrooms and acid. I've also done like weird niche designer hallucinogenic drugs that like 
you know, you know somebody and they're like, I'm dating a designer drug dealer. And they're, it's called like BC5. Yeah, it's always like some weird thing. And I'd be like, okay, I'll do that. My boyfriend was telling me, he's like, yeah, in Chicago, we were doing this one drug that was all numbers. And it was so cool. But I never saw it again after that one year. And That's I was like, the thing. Yeah, you only, if they short, it's a flash in a pan. It's like one guy made it. And you're like, oh, I like this. I also have smoked PCP. Um, in fact, the only things I've consciously never done in my life were meth and heroin. Just because we had a saying in the town I grew up in, in Fresno, never meth, never heroin. Because they were just so much more addictive than other drugs. And because there was so much meth everywhere, you really saw it destroy people's lives. So that got in my head at an early age. Never meth, never heroin, never meth, never heroin. But everything else, I'm like, eh, it's not meth or heroin. It's fair game. Let's go. <laughs> so I also think, I was thinking about this and I'm like, Four people I've dated, as well as, like, three of my close family members have been drug dealers at one point in their life or another. Uh, and that's funny because if you know me, like, it sounds like I'm just, like, using drugs all the time based on this. I've never been, like, a huge partier, not judging people who do use drugs a lot, on obviously. But if I go out, I'll usually have, like, two drinks and go home. Uh, when I was doing drugs more regularly, it would only be, like, two or three times a year, with the exception of doing the edibles before bed, obviously. That's something that's like a regular part of my life because of my anxiety. But I do always try to cultivate like a very stable domestic home environment for myself. And sometimes partying just like isn't conducive to that for my particular mental state. But even some of my more um, stable, supportive domestic partners have been drug dealers or regular drug users. And uh, the drug dealer thing in particular, I'm like, oh, I feel like it's just like a, a convenient and easy way for people to make money, especially where I come from. Like in high school, my best friend's grandma was a drug dealer and she's who we would get weed from all the time. Wow. Yeah. So I was just thinking about all this, just like how common drug use is and how like normalized it is in most people's day to day, but also like how there's such like a varying stigma, like the stigma about it. It's such a dichotomy to how most people live with it, you know? Yeah. I will say before weed was like decriminalized in like probably the biggest state you know California like Colorado you know a lot of, there's a lot of places where it's legal now or it's more more in the culture like most places now I don't think you'd go to prison if you got caught with weed you know but yeah. like back in the day when it was really illegal it was a trip to go to like a weed dealer's house it like yeah. it was true where it's like some guy, like, I I never did. I wasn't that into it. But, like, you, I'd go with, like, a friend, a boyfriend, and you just go to some guy's house who has a six-foot bong and an iguana. Yeah. And, like, a bunch of DVDs. And this was <laughs> when DVDs were fucking expensive. Yes, And you're like, totally. you got all the fucking Sopranos. Or, like, a guy you knew who, like, grew mushrooms in his closet, you know? Or, yeah. like, people had, like, literal weed But it was, like, funny closet. because, like, you'd go to the place... You'd get trapped there for hours. Yeah, you'd be trapped. stuck there for hours talking to this guy. Yeah, that's totally <laughs> like, real. I feel like that's a real... Like, no, it was real. Like, and today's just, kids will never know about the curse of being stuck talking to the, the drug dealer for hours when you just want to go home. Who has some strange pet. He always had an iguana. It was always an iguana. <laughs> yes. No, this is totally true. So, yeah, I was just, like, thinking about this. So I'm like, wow, it's so interesting because, like, the way drugs are demonized and talked about by society at large doesn't actually match up with the way most people encounter drugs in their life. Yeah, and a lot of times it's like, <clears throat> for a lot of people, it's very, like I said, social. Yeah, it's very social. And I mean, you know, obviously for some people, it becomes an addiction issue. Yeah. And it can ruin people's lives and, you know. But it's just this very interesting thing. Anyway, so I was thinking about this, and I was also remembering that two of our Patreon subscribers recommended 
uh, a topic. Um, Maya and Corey both recommended this topic. So I was like, oh, this is what we have to do today. And it is the war on drugs. Whoa. Yeah, it took us a while to get there. Sorry. The war. So, Kenna, what do you know about the war on drugs? Um, wasn't it started by, like, Nixon or, uh... It was Nixon, yeah. Oh, I was right. Yeah, I remember right. history class. Because I remember he was, like, the war on drugs, or he, like, gave some certi- DEA certificate to Elvis, who was obviously... Yes, totally. Not no. on the straight and narrow. There is a very funny picture of Richard Nixon and Elvis in the White House standing next to each other. And now that I think about it, I'm like, you know, if I had to guess, I would say maybe Elvis is high in this picture. Probably. I would guess that he gave Richard Nixon drugs and they were both <laughs> high in the picture. I No, I, Nixon, I think, was a teetotaler. I don't know. I feel like it was politically convenient. But most people do think it was it was Reagan, but it did start with Richard Nixon. Yeah, and I think... I've heard... Okay, so when I was younger, I was really into, like, those, like, disinformation books or, like, books on, like, stories that the news doesn't cover or, like journalistic stories that like didn't make the mainstream and like in one of them they talked about the war on drugs basically starting during vietnam and they cast a lot of aspersion aspersion i don't know if that's the right word uh that the cia may have been funded using drug money from vietnam heroin sales okay so this all would be stuff that makes a lot of sense that we can get into definitely um but, but this is like, I, you know, me being a teenager, I don't know the sources. Right. So in my mind, I've always been like, to me, it seems like the war on drugs was probably in, it started in Vietnam. Okay, well, this is good foreshadowing, because we will talk about this a little bit. It didn't fully start in Vietnam, oh. though. Um, it started in June of 1971. So Nixon was president, and that's when he officially declared the war on drugs. And he called drug use public enemy number one. And since then, what we think of as the war of drugs is just basically this whole onslaught of judicial attempts to regulate, criminalize, and punish drug use in the United States, with some really horrible consequences here, obviously, Uh, especially for the most marginalized people among us, in particular black Americans, who are obviously targeted more aggressively by our justice system on the whole, and especially by these, like, war on drugs type policies. So today, the war on drugs is technically still going on. Every 25 seconds, someone in the United States is arrested for drug possession. One-fifth of the incarcerated population is serving time for drug charges, uh, 30% of whom are black. And in 2015, the U.S. government spent over $9 million per day criminalizing drug users. And none of this has made Americans any safer or healthier or happier. Yeah, uh, to me, it seems like the drug war is uh, was for sure rooted in racism. 100%. Like, um, everything that I remember reading about as a teenager, you're like, oh, like, literally there was, like, even in, like, you know, like I said, I was reading a lot of books with, like, maybe questionable sources, but even then I was like, oh, yeah, uh, all of this makes very much sense. Like, yes. that, there was no question of that. There is no question that this was deeply rooted in racism. Um... And it still is, uh, like, a tool of white supremacy that exists in our country today. Yeah, like, well, you know, like, they where they would give cocaine users less time than crack cocaine users. Exactly. So to understand, like, how we ended up in this position with the war on drugs in the United States today, um, I feel like we should really, like, go back and start with the basics in the beginning and start with, like, a better understanding of what drugs are. Okay. Okay. So, Kenna, when you think about drugs, what kinds of things come to mind? Like, how do you think about drugs? What are drugs? Um, drugs are substances that you use to, to me, 
alter your mental and physical state. Okay, got it. All right, so would you consider alcohol a drug? Yes. All right, would you consider caffeine a drug? Yes. Would you consider sugar a drug? For me, yes, because I'm hypoglycemic. Okay, okay. (laughs) Would you consider cigarettes a drug? Yeah, nicotine. Okay, would you consider vitamins a drug? Mm, I don't know, because I feel like you pee out most vitamins. I think so. I think we should do a vitamin episode. Yeah, because I am concerned about the vitamins. Yeah, we should do that. We'll touch on that. Okay, so it is a little bit tricky figuring out exactly what is and isn't a drug, and lots of people have different ideas about what could be or couldn't be. Uh, Kesha would say, your love is my drug. Kesha thinks love is a drug, and I agree (laughs) with her. Uh, Most people consider a drug just to be anything that has a physiological effect when introduced to the body, kind of like what you were saying, Kenna. And by that definition, though, all sorts of things could be drugs. Like, foods could be drugs. Chocolate. Yeah, that could be a drug. So... You know, there are kind of these, like, everyday drugs that we don't really demonize culturally, which would be things like alcohol, caffeine, sugar. And then there are medically beneficial drugs, uh, which are things that people take to help with medical conditions. There are also drugs that are less common in society and more heavily legislated, and that's kind of what we think of as being an illicit drug. But all of this is pretty socially defined. So sociologists have a pretty good way of trying to define drugs because of this. So they're all like, okay, a drug is a chemical substance, yes, but it has to have, like, these three properties. Like, one, it has a direct effect on the user's physical, psychological, or intellectual functioning. Two, it has the potential to be abused. And three, it has adverse consequences for the individual or society. So when we apply, like, the sociologist's definition, our own interpretation of drugs it really starts to take shape. Like, obviously, things like caffeine and sugar and alcohol and marijuana and cigarettes all fit that number one category, having a direct effect on the user's physical, psychological, and intellectual functioning. Vitamins, potentially, but probably not so much. Then we look at number two, which is the potential to be abused, and we see things like alcohol and cigarettes definitely falling into that category, and maybe marijuana, maybe, depending on your school of thought, and sugar and caffeine. Then we look at number three, which is, like, having adverse consequences, either to yourself or to society, we definitely see the alcohol and cigarettes show up there and maybe maybe also sugar, maybe. Um, and maybe to some degree marijuana, depending on your definition again of like a bad effect. So you can see like the sociological model is useful for identifying drugs, but it's also useful for explaining some of the debate we currently have going on in society about things like marijuana, right? Because when you look at marijuana, you're like, Well, I know that lots of states do legally consider this to be a drug, but maybe it shouldn't be because the potential for adverse consequences and the potential to be abused are both pretty limited. Yeah, I mean, like, I I would say, like, the most uh, abuse I've seen of marijuana is people just too high to drive. Right, but again... Most people, like when I got too high to drive, exit the vehicle. (laughs) Or they just drive real slow. Oh, really, really, really slow. You know what? One time when I was a teenager, I was with my cousin in the car, and she was really, really, really high, and she was driving, and we were on, like, this really residential street in the middle of nowhere, and a cop pulled us over, and I remember she was like, oh, fuck, I was speeding, I was speeding, and the cop came up to the window, and he was like, do you know how fast you were going? And the speed limit was 35, and she was like, 40? And he was like, you were going five. five miles per hour and she was like I'm sorry I just got my license and he was like it's totally fine just you know try to keep up with the speed limit it's dangerous to drive slow too 
or people taking too long in the drive-thru. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm going to say you probably shouldn't drive high in general. I'm, I think gonna that's say, a, I'm also going to say you should not, you should drive, not drive or drive operate high. heavy machinery. Yes, I would say maybe don't even go on your phone that much when you're high. I would say, and yeah, definitely, uh, yeah, just, you know... Don't operate anything while high. Yeah, no. <laughs> but mainly, I just mean like yeah, car, don't. car, uh, lawnmower. Definitely don't use a lawnmower while high. No. <laughs> or a uh, ch- uh, chainsaw. No. No, no. Don't yeah. be on the roof high either. No, you definitely don't want to be on the roof don't, high. Don't be cleaning out your gutters high. No, no. Even Ambien. Like, I had a boyfriend once. We lived on, like, the seventh floor of an apartment building, and he took Ambien, and Ambien will fuck you up. He had, like, really bad insomnia. He tried to climb out the window and jump, because he was like, I can fly! My first, or... Scary! My first or second year in college, when I still lived at the dorms, uh, there was this basically that's when ambient hit yes and everybody was doing the thing where you they stayed up instead of oh, going straight to yeah, sleep yeah, 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 yeah. and people were doing fucked up shit ambient's gnarly like i think like like people were like just like like basically like sleepwalking but doing like yeah. like hurting themselves like Bad. Don't do yeah. it. No, you Go don't want to stay up sleep. on Ambien. No, it's really <laughs> fucked up and scary. Go straight to sleep. Um, but yeah, so basically there's no short and easy answer for what a drug is other than the fact that like society's decided this thing is a drug. Like society's decided sugar isn't really a drug, so sugar's not a drug. Even though it's like, well, sugar's not that different from all these things we do consider drugs. I mean, you do, I mean, I get amped up when I eat sugar. Right. Um, but you know, it's like very, uh, it's very inconsistent, our designations for drugs from a social perspective. And because of this, it's probably not surprising that what's considered a drug changes depending on who you're talking to and where you go. Like, here in California, I don't really think we'd consider, like, weed to be a drug. Yeah, that's why people say California sober. Right, exactly. So regular people you talk to, you know, definitely wouldn't be like, yes, I am using a drug. I am smoking the marijuana. But obviously our court systems in California still do have more than 30,000 people waiting for felonies, misdemeanors, and other marijuana-related convictions to be cleared from the records, uh, many of whom I'm confident are black men disproportionately targeted. But here, you know, if you're just talking to a normal person, like an everyday person who's not in the court system, if you were to say, oh, that person was on drugs, and then you were like, to clarify, they were on marijuana, I think people would probably just kind of laugh. They'd be like, that's not really being on drugs. Yeah, I I mean, to me, the, the drug that I've seen people like, go the most like like do the most wild stuff on is alcohol right exactly but in alcohol also most people wouldn't consider but it's not illegal yeah, yeah it's not illegal like you could you know yes but in places like idaho wyoming kansas south carolina in those states there are no situations in which marijuana use is legal at all like even for medical purposes so there, marijuana would very much be considered a drug. Like, if you're talking to somebody who lives there, they probably are still getting it the illegal way from the sketchy drug dealer with the giant iguana, and they have to do all these steps to get it in covert ways. So there, it probably does feel more like a drug because it's such a restricted and controlled substance. Yeah, and it's funny. I feel like it really is, like, the, what do you, like, the the vibe around it, where it's just, like, if you can, like, you know, like, in Colorado, like, I'm sure if me and my sister, like, wanted to smoke a joint outside or smoke, like, a vape inside, my mom would be like, okay, we'll just do it in the bed, do it outside. But if we, you know, and it wouldn't seem like we were doing, it just would be like we were having a glass of wine. 
Right, exactly. And that's how my family, it's always been like that in my family as well. Even before it was legal, that was something that was very normal but like, in my family. You know, when, you know, before, I, I, it would be like, ah, and it'd be equivalent to doing like heroin in the house. Oh, like when you were growing up, your parents would not have been cool with it. Yeah, but because oh. it's legal now, they probably would be more cool with it. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, no. Yeah, my which family, is like, it was always like a non issue. Yeah, no. Oh, God. Yeah, like when. I grew up in a small town during the D.A.R.E. scare. Yes. (laughs) Well, in the United States, something that's interesting is that federal law still allows for the imposition of the death penalty for trafficking large amounts of any controlled substance, including marijuana. That's so fucked. I know. It hasn't happened before, so there's no, like, legal precedent for it occurring. But it is still pretty wild that our federal law does allow that. Um, you know, today the legality and acceptability of different drugs, it just varies wildly from place to place. And that probably has a lot to do with varying cultural histories associated with drug use. Like, especially if you leave the United States and compare our expenses here to people in other countries. So I actually have like, uh, a history of drugs worldwide. And it's kind of, it starts way back. It starts way back. So researchers have varying theories about human interaction with drugs throughout history. Like some people say prehistoric cave paintings were made by early people in altered states of consciousness. Like they were just tripping and making like weird cave art. There's like that one book that's basically like, uh, that believes that religion or Christianity basically came from psychedelic mushrooms. Oh, I've never heard that, but that is really interesting It's actually a rare book that I once found at the bins and I sold to like Powell's book. Like it's- Oh, that's cool. It's like a, if you find this book, it's like rare. Interesting. And I forget what it's called. I think it's called, like, maybe The Mushroom and the Cross or something. Oh, we could probably look it up. That's really interesting. That would be a good bonus episode to summarize it. Yeah. Um. So other people have even hypothesized that drug use triggered the evolution of, like, the human brain in terms of consciousness. But most people think that's baloney. But some fringe researchers are like, no, through doing drugs, we became conscious sentient beings. And that differentiated us from animals. But... Other researchers are like, I think that person but, is literally high on drugs right now oh, while they're telling us that. Okay, when I was in high school, though, on Animal Planet, they had a show called When Animals Do Drugs. Oh, my God. <laughs> and basically, I learned that hedgehogs get really fucked up on tobacco. So if they find, like, uh, a cigarette on the ground, they get all, they lick themselves all over. And it's like cats with catnip. Oh. I mean, and cats get high off catnip. Also, uh, monkeys like to drink. Uh, in the uh, uh, Caribbean. Yes. Like, some monkeys got used to the taste of rum, so, like, they steal beachgoers' drinks, and some of them get drunk, and it's uh, really... Aren't koalas just high on eucalyptus all day? I think uh, that... I feel like they said that sloths do something, but, yeah, if uh, if you find it, I'm sure you could maybe see it on YouTube, but animals uh, do drugs. Yeah, that's a good YouTube search, for sure. What we do, like, definitely know is that early humans most likely ingested a hallucinogenic plant called kaishe, uh, even if they were only doing it during rituals. And, you know, kind of we talk about this study sometimes on here about the rats and the drugs? I forget. Okay, so it's the study where the rats were put in two different environments. One was this, like, really depressing environment where they were kept isolated in small cages alone with nothing to do. But the other was like this veritable rat paradise filled with other rats so they could have happy rat communities and there were lots of toys and interesting games and things to explore like tubes. And both sets of rats were given two different sets of water options. So they could either have plain water or they could have water laced with cocaine. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) So all of the rats tried both containers once, right? But the happy rats in rat paradise 
they did not go back to the cocaine water. They just chose to drink drink the normal healthy water instead. Basically, they were like too happy and being high on cocaine distracted them from their awesome, cool rat stuff they wanted to do. But the sad, isolated rats, they chose the cocaine water over and over and over again. Wow. Yeah, and this experiment has since been replicated a number of times in different ways. So one addiction researcher, Professor Alexander, who was involved in the study, says the drug only becomes irresistible when the opportunity for normal social existence is destroyed. So what does this mean about early humans and the Kaishe plant? Well, um, since they only really used it in rituals, most researchers think this is probably because they were just kind of happy, which is really interesting. So they got to experience sunlight and nature all day and spend time with friends and family and all of these are like pretty powerful natural antidepressants, which, you know, there's not a direct correlative link between depression and drug use, but there is like this weird like co-occurrence between mental health issues and substance use. They kind of they intermingle, if it, even if it's not, like, causal. According to most researchers, people do have varying perspectives on that. So this doesn't mean that ancient people, like, definitely weren't using drugs ever. It just means that out of the evidence we have, it seems to suggest it wasn't commonplace enough or important enough to be major parts of people's everyday lives, like, in a prehistoric era. And this all really started to change around the Neolithic Revolution in 10,000 BC. Hmm. So as early as 10,000 BC, uh, the Natufians, which is a Mesolithic hunter-gatherer people in the Mediterranean, they are thought to have been mastering beer making. So, Ooh, I love beer. Okay, so right when kind of like the idea of substance use as like a normal part of your everyday life comes on the scene, people are just like, yes, fuck it, let's get drunk. This was number one. So then around 8850 BC, we start to see also evidence popping up around the Americas that people were chewing on coca leaves, which is cocaine, right? Hmm. So they did this, they would uh, like include a pinch of lime and that would help release the leaves psychoactive properties. And this was usually going on in a spiritual capacity or a medicinal capacity. And a lot of people link spirituality and medicinal practices like as being very similar in early times, especially. But also it was going on just as like a social thing or on an individual level, just as a stimulant to like help you be productive, much the same way we see it being used today. Mm. So pretty similar. So not much has changed about like why we do cocaine since the year 8850 BC. Then in like 8100 BC in Asia, cannabis seeds started to appear like in ritual kind of ceremonial architectural dig sites. We see this, but we see it in China, we see it in Japan, and we see it used in a lot of different ways. Interesting. So, so, um, cannabis came from Asia? Yeah, that's where the earliest... Interesting. For some reason, you know, when we did the food episode, I would have guessed North America. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Uh, We also see cannabis from Asia start to really travel around the world on trade routes super early. So that could be why, because it ended up a lot of different places. By 1700 BC, early discussions about cannabis use were found in sacred Hindu texts in India, which said that cannabis was one of five sacred plants and a guardian angel lived in its leaves. And by 450 BC, the ancient Greek historian uh, Herodotus, I believe, was reporting that Scythians, which were an ancient nomadic population, were getting high on weed around there. Interesting. My mom has this funny story. Her Her grandpa had a farm and they're like very, you know, they like... Nebraska farm people, very straight-laced uh, German stock. And he, she was like, Grandpa, you have a ton of weed growing behind the bar in the back. He's like, ah. He's like, that's hemp weed. We used to smoke it before the dances. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And my 
mom was like, her eyes were like, what, Grandpa? Nice, Grandpa parties. <laughs> so then it's 7,000 BC. Um, we see this thing. I'm wondering if you're familiar with it. I only know about it from, like, uh, watching, like, travel TV shows. It's called Beetle Nut. Do you know what this is? Uh-uh. So it's um, something that's pretty popular in lots of places around the world, especially Asia. It's the seed from the fruit of a special type of palm tree. And betel nut in particular, it's just interesting. It's still used uh, lots of different places. So you just chew the nut and it produces this really like quick, easy, cheap high basically. But because it's so accessible, people tend to use it a lot and it is pretty addictive and it does increase your risk of contracting oral cancer. But oh. it, it's been used as early as 7,000 BC and people still use it today mm. in the same way. So then around 6,000 BC, we start to see the cultivation of grapevines for wine production. And that was starting out in the mountains between the Black and Caspian Seas, kind of where Armenia is located. Hmm. Then around 5,700 BC, we start to see opium picking up steam. We see it in Europe. Uh, By 4,200 BC, opium poppy seeds are found in burial sites in Spain. That's really growing. And then in 5,000 BC, we see tobacco starting to hit in this major way. And that was happening around the Andes Mountains and like Peru and Ecuador. And it was used for sacred and medicinal purposes again and by shamans, but also just for social purposes as well, just like cocaine. Then by uh, 3780 BC, we see peyote start to get used by Native Americans. And in 3500 BC, we see evidence that shamans were using mushrooms in North Africa. And uh, by the year 1000 BC in Central America, people were starting to erect temples to mushroom gods, Hmm. which is pretty cool just as like a concept, like temple to the mushroom god. Like it sounds like a system of a down song to me. You know? (laughs) Right? So then by 3000 BC, the opium poppy is first cultivated in Southwest Asia and Sumerians start referring to opium as the joy plant. Then we get to 100 BC, we're moving through time, and tea started to get brewed in China. So tea obviously has caffeine properties. And then this is also around the time Jesus is happening, right? Because, like, Jesus is zero. That's correct? Yes, because it's before Christ and yes. after death. Yes, I don't Bible, but I know Jesus is zero. Yeah, that's a, that's how you know. <laughs> that's how you know. Yeah, yeah. So after Jesus, we really start to see this, like, emphasis on caffeine, like, building. So in 1050 AD, after death, there's another phrase for it, though, right? There's, like, an official phrase that's not after death for AD. Really? Is it in, like, Latin? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I don't... Okay. Like, I don't know Latin. Okay, post-Jesus, um, mate starts to get used. Oh, I just had a very nice mate latte. Uh, From the, Camilla? Yes. Ah. It was very delicious. Yes. Um, mate has also been linked to increased risk of cancer, though. You have told me this many times. Yes, it is my one fact I know that other people don't know, so I feel obligated to share it, but you do have to consume a lot of yerba mate. I don't consume that much because it tends to have a little too much caffeine, and if I drink too much of it, I feel like I am on a giant, like, vibrating machine. Wow, I mean, I've had three cups of coffee and a Celsius already today. Oh my god. I, I would my heart would be out of my chest. Yeah, sometimes I think I'm gonna die of heart failure from caffeine. Um, but then I just largely forget the fears and just continue to ingest caffeine. Actually I did have a lot of coffee today. I had <laughs> I had for um, breakfast I had uh, pie and co- and like three cups of coffee. Oh that's so nice. <laughs> and uh, and now I'm doing a a, a Diet Coke. <laughs> well, by the year fifteen hundred, coffee had become really really popular it was like so popular that in 1475 a turkish law made it legal for a woman to divorce her husband if he failed to provide her with coffee 
Wow. Yeah. I agree with this. Yes. I actually told my boyfriend this before he left the house to go to the grocery store earlier today. I was like, hey, just so you know, in 1475, this Turkish law happened. A woman can divorce a man if he didn't provide her with coffee. And it was like a joke and he didn't seem amused. Um, But then he came back and I opened the fridge and he had bought me a lot of coffee. So Aww. I think it did work. I think it did work. Then by 1633, this Ottoman sultan, uh, Murad IV, banned coffee houses completely because he was like, these are becoming hotbeds of political dissent, which I think is pretty cool. Well, you yeah, drink coffee, you hate the government, you start to get, you got all the energy, you're like, let's do something about this. Well, I think like, isn't, wasn't that a thing in like Europe too before the like French Revolution is because you get, you get jacked up on caffeine and you want to talk. Yeah. I mean, that could be, it makes sense. It's making sense to me. Uh, and then in 1819, a German chemist was able to isolate caffeine from coffee, which I feel like was probably just a huge stepping stone for monster energy drink lovers everywhere. Like, <laughs> this is what made it possible for me to have Celsius, you to have Coca-Cola, and someone else to just get jacked up on monster. But basically, what this all tells us is that drug use has just been, like, a part of human history for as long as humans have had a history, right? So all of this, you know, what does this mean for drug use in our culture as contemporary Americans today? And the reality is that we have like our own really complicated relationship with drug use that has led up to the war on drugs even happening in the first place. So the United States was officially founded in 1776. And right away, we see drug use being pretty commonplace and part of the American story. Like as early as 1619, when colonization was first getting started, um, Virginia passed a law requiring hemp to be grown on every farm in the colony. Hemp was so popular that it was also used as a form of currency in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. Hmm. Then by 1810, you know, we start to get into the 1800s and we see the United States' first millionaire kind of happening. So this was between 1816 to 1825. John Jacob Astor was selling hundreds of thousands of pounds of opium abroad internationally. Whoa! I thought you were going to say hemp. No, no, no. He's going full force. And he was really praised at the time. Like, oh, like, John Jacob Astor's like a titan of industry. Like, he's a master of trade. And he amassed this huge fortune in part, yeah, by smuggling opium okay. into China. Well, oh, also I feel like just back in the day, like, all the, like, you have a cough syrup, you take opium for it. Like, kids' yeah. medicine would have, like, cocaine in it. Yeah, everybody was getting fucked up on drugs, man. Um, and in China, they were like, oh, this opium's getting kind of out of control. So they had these imperial orders where they're like, we're not doing opium here anymore. Uh, and he was like, you'll fucking take my opium. So he had this whole system where he was, like, bribing local officials in China. He was utilizing these small vessels to, like, sneak the opium in off of these giant vessels that stayed parked out in sea. He was selling opium all over the place. And he was selling it in the United States, too. He brought some opium to New York. He sold it openly. He advertised in local newspapers in New York to be like, come get your opium from me. Whoa. <laughs> and this is how the United States' first multimillionaire was born. So as early as 1833, though, this editorial was published in the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, which asked, this is a doctor writing it, and, and he asked, is there any sure and safe method of curing a person of the habit of opium use when that habit is confirmed by many years of use of the article? So this doctor who wrote this was like, look, I'm treating this young woman. She was prescribed opium to treat anxiety. She's super addicted now, and I don't know how to get her off the opium. And lots of other doctors started to write in. They were noticing the same thing. They were like, yeah, we have some patients who are addicted as a result of a physician's prescription. Like, I prescribed opium to this person to help with, like, pain, and now they're just super addicted. 
Or there's people who came to them who were like, yeah, I was like using opium just for fun without consulting a doctor. And now I'm super addicted. It was like recreational use. And this is really interesting because I feel like it's such a precursor to the opioid epidemic that came about in the United States in the 2010s which also happened in part due to doctors over-prescribing opioids. Yeah, I haven't seen the documentaries about, like, Purdue Pharma and all that, but it just seems like they were just like, prescribe as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. So this is kind of a precursor to that. So, you know, by the 1830s, everyone's like, oh, we're kind of, a lot of people are doing opium. People like drugs. Then, by the time we get to the 1850s, Opium use is just, like, really widespread in the United States. It's everywhere. In 1859, Harper's Magazine wrote this story about it where they described, like, glassy-eyed middle-class people just, like, in public, just eyes glazed over from all of the opium they were prescribed by their doctors. By the 1870s, this is where we started to see the United States pass their first anti-opium laws. Now, if you remember, opium had been a popular drug in Asia for, like, a long time. And in Asia, in China, they had been passing their own anti-opium laws. But in the United States, passing anti-opium laws was a tool of white supremacy and, like, anti-Asian sentiment. So these laws, the United States in the 1870s were like, okay, we're, we're trying to battle opium here. They were mostly directed at Chinese immigrants who had been the victims of, obviously, racism and xenophobia. As this historian Peter Knight explained it, stories of Chinese immigrants who lured white females, those are the words, into prostitution, along with media depictions of the Chinese as depraved and unclean, bolstered the enactment of anti-opium laws in 11 states between 1877 and 1900. So basically, you know, you have Chinese immigrants here, you got white supremacy, white supremacying, everyone's like, oh no, we are xenophobic and racist, let's concoct these whole complex stories about how Chinese immigrants are predators. And again, I think this is interesting because they use the fragility of the white woman to demonize men of color. Yet again, this is a thing we see all the time in the United States where they're like, not our beautiful white females being lured into prostitution by these drug crazed immigrants. And it's like, okay, tale as old as time. We hear this constantly over and over yeah, again. Of even Trump, you know? Yeah, exactly. Even Trump did the same thing, but instead of the Chinese immigrants, it was the Mexican immigrants. So it's like, okay, new enemies, xenophobia, same thing, victimization of white women, blah, 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 blah. So that kind of brings us into the end of the 1800s, right? And we start to see people in the United States, uh, now they're being able to like purchase cannabis extract in pharmacies or doctor's offices to help with stomach aches, migraines, inflammation, and insomnia. Uh, and this checks out, right? Today we know marijuana can alleviate pain without causing physical dependence, and it can also decrease seizures. And if you're someone like me, I still to this day take cannabis to help with insomnia. So we kind of see a shift away from opium going into more like medicinal weed use. Then by the 1890s, cocaine was also super popular. And this is, I think, what you were talking about, kind of how you could just get like medicine with cocaine in it. <laughs> yeah, cocaine was everywhere. Like Coca-Cola had cocaine in it originally. Everything just had cocaine everywhere. So cocaine was also super fucking popular at the end of the 1800s. It was so popular, in fact, that you could buy a syringe and small amounts of cocaine for $1.50 in the Sears Roebuck catalogs. Whoa! And you'd just be like, hook me up, let's go. Yeah. And a <laughs> syringe, just an injected cocaine. So, Whoa, I'm like, I don't even, ugh, I'm just like, how sanitary is that? Yeah. So the same place you would go to buy, like, your clothes, your cheap guitars, your kit houses, which we talked about in episode 37, Module Mayhem, uh, all about prefab housing, that same catalog, you could also, yeah, just buy cocaine from it. And around this time, the United States Congress is just starting to get a little more involved in drug use in general. 
they're kind of like, what's going on here? You know, they're starting to pass these congressional acts to levy taxes on drug use, on morphine, on opium in the year 1890. So this is really like directed not at cocaine, but at morphine and opium. And what we kind of see is like when one thing starts to get more regulated, something else just pops up and becomes more popular in its place. So in the early 1900s, you know, racial tension shockingly was high in the United States. Like who could guess? That's like the whole story of the United States, right? White people hate everyone. Uh, They hate native people. They hate black people always. They hate Mexican immigrants. They hate Chinese immigrants. And They're just very much into the white supremacy. And, you know, again, not trying to distance myself from my whiteness. These are my family members. My family members are the one just like, ah, we're here and racist because my family's been in the United States for a very long time as white people. I think we came over, like, in the first batch of colonizers. Wow. We, yeah, I'm what's called a daughter of the American Revolution on both sides of my family tree, which means both my mom's side and my dad's side were here before the American Revolution happened. Whoa. So, again, not trying to distance myself. These are 100% my terrible ancestors. So all this racism is happening, and this is really, really heavily tied to public perceptions of drug use. So by 1909, the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act was introduced, and this actually banned the possession, the importing, and the use of opium for smoking. However, you could still purchase opium to use in a medicinal capacity. Like children's cough syrup. Like children's cough syrup, yeah. But this was major because this was the first federal law to ban the non-medicinal use of a substance. Prior to this, obviously states and counties had been banning things like alcohol sales, but nothing was really done at a federal level to affect the entire country's use of a substance. And again, cannot understate how much this was tied to just like racism, white supremacy, and xenophobia. So... In 1910 kind of era, we see a lot starting to happen regarding like how the government's relating to drugs, this kind of whole decade. In 1914, Congress passed something called the Harrison Act, which regulated and taxed the production, importing, and distribution of both opiates and cocaine. So now we're starting to get into tackling cocaine as well. And this really helped kind of cut down, at least on the overprescribing of opium by doctors. So there was kind of like a maybe net positive from it. But now, early cocaine laws at this time, they were definitely intended to persecute specifically black men in the South. So in 1914, the New York Times published an article proclaiming, this is like really, really gnarly. So this whole part's going to be really gnarly. It's a lot of racism. I'm really sorry. Uh, Negro cocaine fiends are a new Southern menace. Yeah, so that was the headline of the story. So big letters, they're basically like, oh, black men are doing a lot of cocaine and they're terrorizing the South, basically, right? Which is just like more of the same shit we see. We see like, oh, black men are the enemy. We're afraid of them. Ah, it's just really like fucked up, you know, implementation of white supremacy. And within the body of this piece, a doctor, a literal doctor wrote, the cocaine user imagines that he hears people taunting and abusing him. And this often incites homicidal attacks upon the innocent and unsuspecting victims. Right? So he's like, oh, everybody's on drugs and they're going to kill you. And the you ostensibly being good, upstanding white people. You should be afraid of people of color using drugs. So this all sounds very familiar. Like everything we grew up with hearing. the Yeah, like the Reagan era. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same shit. We've been doing the same playbook for like a century. So then this doctor went on to use this term that was popular at the time that is so fucked up. Um, and it is the cocaine N-word. 
this was just a word they they just published this phrase like this is just what they called it this was such a thing so when we talk about the united states really trying to control and regulate cocaine we're really talking about them trying to control and regulate black people and especially black men uh, and this trend continued into some of the first anti-marijuana laws we saw, which were developing in the Midwest and the Southwest around the same time. But these were not directed towards black men. They were directed towards Latino people. So in 1910, the Mexican Revolution was happening and refugees came to the United States to escape, you know, the violence of the revolution back home. And with them, they brought weed because weed was super commonplace in Mexico. People used it all the time. It was like drinking in, you know, the United States or whatever. Now, if you remember, the U.S. had not had a problem with weed before, right? But since they were really xenophobic about these new immigrants from Mexico, it led to this increase in the demonization of marijuana. So according to Eric Schlosser, who's the author of the book Reefer Madness, police officers in Texas claimed that marijuana incited violent crimes, aroused a lust for blood, and gave its users superhuman strength. Uh, rumors spread that Mexicans were distributing this killer weed to unsuspecting American schoolchildren. So if this doesn't really hammer home like the drug scares growing up, you remember like growing up, we were always told people were just going to give us a bunch of free drugs and get us all addicted to drugs as kids. Yeah, like someone was just going to hand you a bunch of PCP and somehow you decapitate someone. Yes. I remember reading this story in like an old Rolling Stone where they're like, what is making these people on PCP decapitate other people? And I'm like, what? Yeah, no. So this is totally the same thing. So you know, in this whole decade, they're like, oh, the black men are going to be scary and violent with their cocaine. And the Latino men are going to be scary and violent with their weed. And both are, they're giving them to kids and they want to harm you good upstanding white people. And in particular, they want to harm the white women. I don't. Yeah, I like like the dare thing in the 80s and or 90s being like, all these people are going to offer you, adults yeah. are going to offer you drugs. I'm like, what? Yeah, nobody's giving you free drugs. That's, if there's one thing I know in this world. <laughs> drugs cost money unless you're super hot. <laughs> yes. So by 1919, basically, we start to see both alcohol prohibition laws and kind of drug laws in full effect, mostly as a way to control marginalized communities. So with the 18th Constitutional Amendment being ratified, this was happening in 1919, that banned the manufacture, transportation, uh, and sale of intoxicating liquors. So this was prohibition. This oh. is really when alcohol prohibition happens, and this is officially what we think of as a prohibition era, pro prohibiting the use of alcohol completely. And Congress also passed that same year the National Prohibition Act, or the Volstead Act, it's sometimes called, which provided guidelines on how to federally enforce this new era of alcohol prohibition. So the 1920s, you know, like the flapper era, like the jazz era, the speakeasy era, this is really what we think of as the prohibition era, definitely. We have alcohol prohibition in addition to all these new anti-cocaine and anti-marijuana laws being passed. The federal government is attempting to prohibit alcohol sales. And everyone now acknowledges, looking back, this was a huge mistake. Prohibition was a failure, and some people even call it a disaster because it led to just a massive black market emerging for alcohol that funded criminal organizations. So an interesting thing about prohibition is that at first, alcohol consumption did sharply decrease. They're like, look, alcohol, illegal. And everybody for a couple years couldn't get a hold of alcohol, so they weren't drinking. But then criminal organizations started to get more organized. They started planning how they could provide alcohol to the people because they knew the people wanted it. And they started to develop these complex systems for illegally 
funneling alcohol into speakeasies, which were like the underground illegal bars. And within just a few years, alcohol consumption was back up to 70% of its pre-prohibition level. Whoa. Yeah. This new alcohol, though, that people were drinking instead of the old, like, kind of legal alcohol, the new alcohol varied greatly in potency and quality. And it had, like, a bunch of terrible outcomes. Like, people were getting alcohol poisoning. People were dying. It was, like, fucked up gnarly alcohol. And some people even say that this Prohibition era is directly responsible for the rise of the American Mafia as we know it today. Oh, yeah, because I would, yeah, because you're just, like, people want to drink and you're, there's a hole in the market. There's a hole in the market and the mob filled it. (laughs) Like, I'm like, that's capitalism 101. Right. That is the free market. market. (laughs) That's, That's how your free market works. And this is important because this is something we see playing into the war on drugs that we'll get into later also. So it's important to remember. So by 1933, everyone was coming to terms with the fact that, you know, making alcohol super illegal did not have a good or positive impact on society in any way, and people were still drinking alcohol. They're just really sketchy alcohol. So finally, the 21st Amendment was ratified, overturning the 18th and making alcohol legal once again. However, Congress set its sights on a new old enemy in the 1930s in a major way, which was marijuana. Right, a.k.a. the devil's lettuce. So, in 1937, you know, now we're federally looking at marijuana legislation. The Marijuana Tax Act was passed. And remember, states were imposing their own weird uh, xenophobic anti-immigrant marijuana laws. But this was at the federal level, which is different. This was the whole country. So, the Marijuana Tax Act was a federal law placed a tax on the sale of cannabis, hemp, or marijuana, right? And all of these are closely related, but apparently separated based on things like their psychotropic properties. Yeah, I feel like stoners many of time have explained to me the difference between hemp and CBD and THC and marijuana, and I don't remember. It's just... It's It's, a lot. It's a lot. It's not an interest of mine, so I'm just like, "Eh." Right. Well, it was an interest of the federal government, so they were like... (laughs) They didn't make it illegal, but they're like, you gotta, we're gonna tax this. We're gonna tax this so much. So some states, some counties made it illegal. The federal government was just like, if you want to do this, you gotta give us a cut, right? So they placed these huge penalties on unpaid taxes from the sale of marijuana. Like a $2,000 fine, which was huge at the time, and up to five years in prison. Whoa. Yeah, in 1933. And this was kind of riding the coattails of this whole reefer madness propaganda campaign that had taken hold at the time. So, kind of, did you ever watch Reefer Madness, the movie? Uh, I feel like I have in high school, but I completely forgot. I think it's about, like, you know, it's basically, like, if you smoke weed, you're you're gonna do murder and mayhem. Yeah, if you smoke weed, you'll murder somebody. That's basically the premise of this. So, Reefer Madness is a super sensationalized, one-hour-long propaganda film used to make the U.S. public afraid of cannabis. So, the premise is this. A high school principal is telling a bunch of parents, like, oh my god, marijuana cigarettes are ruining your kids' lives. There's, like, a drug dealer in this town who lures a bunch of teenagers into his house, which they call a reefer house, right? A reefer house! Yeah, and then he convinces them to smoke pot. He's like, take these reefer cigarettes, youth. And then from there, all the teenagers get addicted to reefer cigarettes, and they fall into this miserable life of crime. Uh, They ruin their own lives. They ruin the lives of their families. And in the end, a, a young, sweet, innocent white girl dies all because of this weed demon 
And of course, there's also like these racist references to marijuana and jazz clubs thrown in there. Uh, since at the time, hipsters and jazz clubs dominated by black jazz artists like Cab Calloway, who had a song called Reefer Man, they were gaining popularity, right? So this was like a twofold thing. They're like, oh no, black men are gonna make your daughters smoke weed and kill themselves or whatever. So if this at all sounds interesting to you, there is actually a musical satire of Reefer Madness that was like a full play in Los Angeles in 1998. And eventually it was turned into a movie in 2005 starring Nev Campbell, Kristen Bell, and Alan Cumming. And okay. it, is, it is pretty funny. It's pretty good. It's the original Reefer Madness, but it's it's very camp. It's very intentionally hilarious. I think the original was camp, but not intentionally. Not intentionally. So the musical version is great. I recommend it. Alan Cumming is amazing. Uh, but yeah, this kind of just tells you how gung-ho the U.S. government was about demonizing marijuana during the 1930s. And basically this federal prohibition uh, of like it wasn't a federal prohibition. It was like a federal taxation, I guess, of marijuana. It came during a period of mass hysteria about Mexican immigrants and black jazz musicians. And yeah, again, this should sound familiar. Same playbook we've always been using. So basically, xenophobia and racism were filtered through these drug concerns. And the New York Times explained, police in Texas border towns demonized the plant in racial terms as the drug of immoral populations who were promptly labeled Fiends. Mm. So, you know, people were aware that this is kind of what was going on. By 1931, 29 states had outlawed marijuana. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. So then that brings us to the 1940s. We got war going on. We got World War II. And by 1945, World War II had ended. And we all know via Operation Paperclip, which we've talked about in episodes before, that the U.S. government started bringing over a whole bunch of Nazis into the country under new identities to help with like military efforts and science efforts. Uh, really, really fucked up. So this one extra fucked up dude, obviously Klaus Barbie, have you heard of him? The name sounds familiar. Yeah, awful, awful, awful Nazi man. He became a CIA asset after World War II. So he didn't come to the United States under Operation Paperclip, he fled to South America, but the CIA did pay him to be an asset on behalf of the United States government. In South America, Klaus Barbie became friends with Pablo Escobar, as well as this other drug kingpin named Roberto Suarez Gomez, who uh, was the inspiration for the movie Scarface. Hmm. So the CIA helped Barbie and a team of Nazi mercenaries called the Fiancés of Death assist Suarez Gomez in overthrowing the Bolivian government there to turn it into just like a narco state. So already, this is where we see the CIA as early as the 1940s just being absolutely fucking horrible trash, right? Helping Nazis do these fucked up things in South America all to get their hands involved in this international drug trade, which is something that is also important to keep in mind because we will see evidence of this happening time and time again leading up to the war on terror, or uh, the war on drugs, sorry, just like you mentioned. Yeah, I feel like there was like a book that was like out of print where a guy was like, kind of went step by step and to be like see i hate this is which yes, i'm sure it, you'll get into you might be talking about the journalist who was he was really discredited and his whole career was ruined because of this um and still it hasn't been 100 percent confirmed uh but there's just so many little snippets of evidence that people generally agree that what he was saying was correct even though it hasn't been 100 percent proven i feel like regardless it's like one of those things regardless like uh, the CIA shouldn't exist. No, the CIA is fucked up. It should not exist. It's <laughs> but it's like, it would not, it would not be unsurprising or it wouldn't be surprising to me uh, if they did use profits from illicit 
by illicit means, whether it be drugs or some other, Ill, you know, yeah. illegal way to fund their activities because we literally don't know what's fucking going on. No, like exactly. even if you think about like the Iran Contra scandal, that shit was illegal. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So it's just like they're regardless the opacity is the issue whether or not that specific of the drug yes. is useful but regardless it is a, a tool to me of the government tool of like colonization tool of white supremacy regardless yeah of whether specifically drugs were used yeah i mean or not. definitely but it does we seem like know it, we definitely know the cia was involved in drug scandals in other countries scandals in drug things in other countries and i will talk about some of that but the journalist you're mentioning who did the whole first expose he was his life was ruined when he came out with us and it's really really gnarly um so this kind of brings us to the 1950s so throughout the 19 19- what, 20s through 1960, maybe, we saw the golden age of Hollywood take place, right? Hollywood. Yeah. (laughs) So during this time, we have a lot of actors and actresses. There was, like, this system at the time that was, like, a contract system with the movie studios. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these actors were just being positively abused with drugs in movie of studio contract systems. Oh, my goodness. You, like, Judy Garland. There is an amazing podcast. I probably mentioned it before. You must remember this. They have a whole, she, uh, Katrina Longworth has a whole series on like old Hollywood and just like each like Hollywood actor, you're like, oh my God. Yeah, these people were really not treated well. So like at 19 years old, Debbie Reynolds describes the studio making her go to this doctor who was injecting her with what they all called vitamins. But she's like, these aren't vitamins. And she kept going to her regular doctor and the studio was really mad. She was even going to a different doctor. They're like, no, go to our doctor and take your vitamins. (laughs) Vitamin, uh... Yeah, and she definitely saw, she's like, everybody is just getting, like, really fucking high on drugs that the studio is shoving down their throat. So Judy Garland, yes, also recounts being given what she called pep pills, which was just speed, um, by her mom. And then eventually being prescribed medicine by movie studio doctors to control both her weight and her energy levels. And Garland said, uh, they'd take us to the studio hospital and knock us out with sleeping pills. Then after four hours, they'd wake us up and give us the pep pills again so we could work 72 hours in a row. And uh, Judy Garland did die of a drug overdose at the age of 47. Sad. Yes. So, you know, drugs are really being heavily utilized, I guess, by the capitalist American kind of system here. And we also see the CIA continuing to get their hands into this weird drug shit. They had operations like uh, Midnight Climax and MK Ultra, which we've talked about before. And these were the mind control projects run for over a decade that tested the effects of LSD on just regular American people. So then in the 1960s, You know, there's also this rise in recreational drug use. Recreational drug use had always kind of been happening, but now we really have counterculture taking hold, the hippie movement starting, there's political dissent, there's these ideas of rebellion, and drug use as a recreational thing just became a little bit more normalized. They weren't doing it in these, like, medicinal kind of, like, couched in medicinal cloaks or, you know, at the movie studio, like, these are your vitamins. People are just like, no, I'm fucking smoking weed because I like it. And this is, like, huge, a huge change in the culture of drug use, even though drug use had always kind of happened uh, with white people specifically. You know, now white people are doing drugs and they're like, I'm not sorry about it. So we also, though, have non-counterculture types, like average housewives or moms, stuck also around this time on something called rainbow diet pills which was this potent cocktail of sedatives and stimulants commonly prescribed to them by doctors. Oh, yeah, like, you you know, like the Rolling Stones saw, song, Mommy's Little Helper. Yes. Which I think about, like, like 50s housewives just being, like, on some 
woo, drugs. Yes. Like pills. Yes, totally. This is definitely a thing. Like, we see a lot of women's bodies being controlled in multiple different ways through drugs, uh, through the encouragement to be on drugs, whether it be amphetamines and stimulants to be productive and do things, or sedatives to not be so uh, disgruntled. We also see them, yeah, being used to control one's weight a lot. There's a, real, a lot of really complicated relationships with drugs in the United States happening in the 1960s and before that, obviously. Uh, we also have the Vietnam War thing happening in here, right? It was, what, through 1950 through 1970? Like, the, it spanned over a large period, but 1960s is really where this is starting to kind of enter the cultural zeitgeist, like the experience of soldiers in the Vietnam War. So, in the 1960s, we start to get these reports of armed servicemen in the Vietnam War using drugs more heavily than any previous generation of enlisted U.S. troops. Oh, I believe this. Yes. My, um, I had a co-worker one time. He was older. He was like my dad's age. And he would talk about being on acid in Vietnam. It was so fucked up. And, but he was just like, he's like, it was so fucked up. But he's like, it was the best high I've ever had. Oh my God, that's horrible. Yeah, he told me like... Like, he was actually cool, and he was just like, I, he was like, I was drafted, like, fuck that war, but he was just like, the drugs there were good. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, so they, these, these U.S. soldiers in Vietnam were using heroin, amphetamines, and marijuana, and by 1971, the Department of Defense reported that 51% of the armed forces were smoking weed, 31% were using psychedelic drugs like LSD, mescaline, uh, or mushrooms, and 28% had taken harder drugs like cocaine or heroin. Uh, also, the military command was heavily prescribing pills to increase soldiers' performance. Between 1966 and 1969, the armed forces used 225 million tablets of stimulants, which were then followed by sedatives to help relieve anxiety and prevent mental breakdowns. So they were pumping them up with stimulants, and then they were bringing them down with sedatives, right? In World War II, for example, 10% of soldiers had total mental breakdowns just due to the horror of war. This is not something people are equipped to deal with. But because of this, like, drug cocktail they started giving these soldiers uh, in Vietnam, that number went down to just 1%. So they were just getting them so high that they wouldn't really be aware of what they were doing, so they wouldn't have full mental breakdowns about how awful it was. Whoa. By 1973, one in five American soldiers was a habitual heroin user. Whoa. Yeah. And this is uh, really interesting in, like, a fucked up and deranged way because the scope of this drug use really became a scapegoat for all of the atrocities that American soldiers committed in Vietnam. Uh, and if you don't know about this, it's pretty gnarly. It's really horrific. I'm not going to get into a lot of details. But in 1968, the My Lai Massacre happened. Do you know about this? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So the U.S. Army murdered 500 civilians. Um and Democratic Senator Thomas J. Dodd tried to claim that they only did it because of illegal drug use. Like, oh, illegal drugs caused this massacre. Rather than the actual culprit, which we know is the brutal dehumanization of Vietnamese people and the vilification of communism abroad. That's what happened. So we're starting to have, like, a lot of um, pushes for accountability in terms of, like, how the U.S. is having this duality to their approach to drugs, right? We're passing laws being like, no, 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 you can't do it. But then we're also like effectively utilizing it to advance the like demands of capitalism, both within the United States and abroad. Like, and it's kind of different sides of the same thing where you see at the movie studios, like all of these actors are forced to like be pumped up on stimulants to work, work, work and make the studios money. And on the flip side, you see American soldiers in Vietnam fighting communism to advance the capitalist agenda there. And it's, it's just capitalism and drug use are really uh, inextricably intertwined in this period. 
Uh, also worth noting, in 1961, the CIA was conspiring with the mob in Miami to assassinate Fidel Castro in Cuba, which we also talked about in our episode um, about the CIA and Fidel Castro. And Castro um, had put an end to this like really lucrative drug and vice criminal network that had been happening in Cuba. So a lot of the CIA's Cuban assets who'd been involved in like the criminal networks there were brought to Miami where they set up shops smuggling drugs here in the US instead. And in the 1960s is when we see the CIA really conspiring with criminal drug running gangs in the effort to enlist them in their fight against communists in South America. So this is really where that starts to get entrenched in a very formal way in the 1960s. And all of this is like the history of the United States relationship with drugs leading up to 1970, the war on drugs. So this is really where we see the reaction. Okay, so it's 1970, uh, Richard Nixon is president, and he signs this thing called the Controlled Substances Act, or the CSA. So the CSA conveniently excludes alcohol and tobacco, specifically because they are big businesses in the United States at the time. But it does outline five schedules, is what they're called, used to classify other drugs based on their medicinal application and the potential they have for abuse. So schedule one drugs are considered the most dangerous. These are the ones that they're like, oh, they pose a huge high risk for addiction. They have little evidence of medical benefits. And this is where things like LSD, heroin, and MDMA fall, but also marijuana. And marijuana was supposed to just be there temporarily pending review by a commission that Nixon appointed led by a Republican Pennsylvania governor, Raymond Schaefer. However, in 1972, this, you know, report came out and they were like, yeah, pretty unanimously, we recommend decriminalizing the possession and distribution of marijuana for personal use. Nixon just ignored it and kept marijuana as a schedule one drug. Well, I have a theory about this and it's because like Nixon, I mean, and Reagan after hated the hippies. Yeah. It's not even a theory. It is real. I mean, it is very true, but it basically, it's just like, oh, well, all of my enemies are hippies. They smoke weed. It's way easier to arrest them now that weed is illegal. So it is actually that explicitly as well as black people. Yeah. So the substances considered to be least likely to be addictive would be like things like cough medications with small amounts of codeine. Those fell into the schedule five category just for comparison. And the year after this is when Nixon went full force with this war on drugs. This is the first time we hear the phrase used. He's really hitting it hard. And this is when we see the war on drugs officially start, 1971. Oh, 1973, sorry. And this is also when the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, or the BNDD, was formed. Now, the BNDD was fucking wild, and like not in a fun way. These guys were basically American drug cops, which were giving carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. And one of the things they did was fuck with Mexico, like really hard. So these American agents went to Mexico to pose as potential drug buyers, and then they would perform these buy and busts, right? They'd be like, we're gonna buy it, haha, we caught you. And they were supposed to hand prospective traffickers over to the Mexican police after this, which is already weird to me because they're literally American cops acting in a foreign country, which just seems like that shouldn't happen. Like, can you imagine Mexican cops coming to the United States and performing buy and busts on American citizens? No. No. But on top of that, these operations violated a number of other laws and procedures. U.S. agents took part in the assassination and cold-blooded killings of some people in Mexico involved in drug sales. One BNDD agent said that one of his colleagues while working in a Juarez ordered another colleague to shoot a fleeing suspect in the back. 
and that person refused. They were like, I'm not fucking doing that. So the first agent emptied the gun into the suspect's back until he was, quote, shot two pieces. Uh, BNDD agents also participated in and even encouraged the torture of suspects. Again, these are American agents in Mexico to Mexican people. One BNDD agent said, down there, I really got an eyeful. They, the BNDD agents, actually participated in the torture. Anybody. It didn't matter a shit who it was. They would actually participate in the torture of these goddamn people. I got caught up in a goddamn gunfight there myself and killed men. Now we were running into this kind of stuff constantly, all the time. So this is just wild that this has even happened. And back in the United States, Nixon is also increasing federal funding for drug control agencies and proposing stricter measures like mandatory prison sentencing for drug crimes. He also announces the creation of the Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention. Then in 1973, we also see the closure of the BNDD and the creation of what we now know today is, you know, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. So the BNDD was kind of the precursor to the DEA. And this DEA, right, it's an agency that's a special police force targeting illegal drug sales, smuggling, and use in the U.S. And the year the DEA launched, it had a budget of $75 million and 1,470 special agents on staff. Today, it's grown to an annual budget of over $2 billion and over 5,000 agents. And in case you're wondering, you know, yeah, the DEA did continue the BNDD practices in Mexico. And the DEA also pressured Gerald Ford to extend funding and authorization to work in Mexican border towns after Nixon was no longer in office. Hundreds of DEA agents tracked uh, down opium and marijuana fields, called in helicopters, sprayed crops with powerful herbicides, then rounded up all of the suspected growers. DEA agents referred to this period as the atrocities because of how fucked up they were to these people involved in drugs in Mexico. So in 1978, a Mexican lawyer documented some of the torture of suspects involved in these DEA cases in Mexico, including beatings, waterboarding with chili-infused sparkling water, near drowning in shit-filled water, filled water, and just like straight-up sexual assault and rape. And this all happened because Nixon's rhetoric had positioned the war on drugs as being a twofold issue. It was an issue that brown people in other countries brought to the United States, which sounds familiar, same rhetoric Trump used, and an issue that black and brown people in the United States used to enact violence against white people within the country, right? This was the positioning of this in Nixon's mind. So as Time Magazine explained, in the U.S., Nixon's rhetoric and his successors pushed the focus from U.S. drug demand to international drug supply. In doing so, politicians now framed the war as a foreign conflict, which pitched Americans against murderous gangs of overseas criminals. And I feel like this is really the rhetoric we grew up hearing. Oh right? my gosh, like, like uh, as a kid, you would have thought that a drug dealer was like a... Uh, just a serial killer like the worst like yes. like a like a like almost like a cartoonish supervillain was yeah. a drug dealer like no no humanity like you know just someone who would like you know uh steal candy from a baby and like you know yeah and punch the baby in the face afterwards and then give the baby cocaine yes and this is like interesting to me because if you think about kind of the history of drug use in like in people, like, when we think back, like, to kind of the experiences we were talking about in the BC eras of doing drugs, it just seemed like this thing that was just a normal kind of part of people's lives. It wasn't that big of a deal. 
And we just see how, like, through the creation of the United States in particular, like, all throughout the U.S.'s history, it really starts to become this thing that's manipulated and used for political gain, right? It's made to be this huge villainous terrible thing that seems to just be an excuse for white Americans to enact white supremacy wherever they go. And it's just interesting to me seeing how fast that turned, you know, seeing that from 10,000 BC to the 1700s, like from 1700s to now, everything changed so rapidly. Yeah. So, you know, what exactly was Nixon's motive in launching this war on drugs that aggressively targeted people of color all over the globe? Well, we actually know. So, Kenna, what you said was spot on, and we know it's spot on because in 1994, Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman, provided some insights during an interview in Harper Magazine. He was like, look, Nixon had two enemies during his presidency, the anti-war left and black people. Explicitly said this, point blank. Ehrlichman said, and this is a quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Yeah, I'm, this is actually like bringing back my, like I have totally read this before. Yes. So we see here from the jump, the war on drugs is a method to direct state violence towards Nixon's political enemies. And this is relevant because it still affects how we view drug policy in the United States today. And I just want to take a second and really hammer home how gnarly this is. Nixon invented a proxy enemy, a literal straw man to take down his political opponents. He couldn't declare war on black people. He couldn't declare war on wanting a social safety net or, you know, not wanting global violence. So instead he made up this third new thing, convinced everyone these two groups were heavily associated with it and tried to take that third thing down instead, which was drugs. And this is monumental and even more monumental that Ehrlichman admitted to this in the 90s. This is like some real psyop corrupt shit going on. That's just like some shit who's just like, yeah, who like someone who's just like, you know, it's like... He was proud of it. He was yeah, like, this was a great strategy. Well, we had a like, political strategy. Also, like, just, like, the fucking gall to just be like, so fucking what? What are you going to do about it? Like, right. that's the vibe I get. Like, what, what are you going to do about it? It is possible that Ehrlichman admitted this because he realized the error of his ways. I don't know the context under which he admitted this. But either way, it's just... It's pretty shocking that anybody would even feel comfortable acknowledging this. Um, but I'm glad that we have the information because it's just one of those things where you feel tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, you know? And then yeah. somebody's like, no, actually, this is really real and we knew what we were doing as well, we did that. yeah, it's just like what people, you know, what the right does now, like, you know, trying to create these straw men arguments about, you know, LGBTQ plus rights, like all this yes. like other stuff where it's just like... You're trying to make this one thing illegal, but it's really about, you know... Controlling people control, who are your political yeah. opponents. Yeah. And it's important to note that during the 70s, not everyone was on board with Nixon doing this. Um, between 1973, uh, when the DEA was formed, and 1977, when Nixon left office, 11 states voted to decriminalize marijuana possession. And that's pretty major, given the fact that this is what was going on at the federal level at the time. And in 1977, Jimmy Carter uh, became president in part by running on a campaign to decriminalize marijuana federally. During his first year in office, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize up to one ounce of marijuana. Wow. 
But of course, in the 1980s, our favorite villain emerged on the political presidential scene again, Kenna. Reagan. Reagan. It's like, okay, it's so funny because all my TikToks lately have been like, yeah, this was like, America was going good. And then all the bar graphs are, whenever Reagan, they're like, it's Reagan again. It's always Reagan. Like, Reagan. I saw one today about like the minimum wage and they're like, yeah, it was Reagan. It's all Reagan. Um, so, of course, yeah, it's Ronald Reagan, because why wouldn't it be? So he reinforced and expanded all of those Nixon-era war on drugs policies. And in 1984, his wife Nancy Reagan launched the infamous Just Say No campaign uh, to try to convince people to say no to drugs, but also, yeah, to just demonize drug use in general, since, again, it had become so associated with the left and people of color due to these propaganda campaigns. Not due to any actual rational correlation between being on the left or being not white and doing more drugs than anybody else, right? Black and white people, for example, record doing drugs at the same level. But instead to capitalize off of this heavily propagandized myth that leftists and people of color were just drug addict fiends who wanted to hurt you. Now, as the Reagans shifted the American focus back onto the war on drugs, this meant more severe penalties were passed for drug-related crimes in Congress and state legislatures. In 1986, for example, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which established mandatory minimum prison sentences for certain drug offenses. And this law allocated longer prison sentences for people caught with crack cocaine than people caught with powdered cocaine. And this is what you mentioned earlier, Kenneth. And this is super important because crack cocaine was used more by black Americans. 80% uh, of crack users were black, but powdered cocaine was used more by white Americans. And remember, Black and white people aren't using drugs at different rates. We're using drugs the same amount. But five grams of crack triggered an automatic five-year sentence. It took 500 grams of powder cocaine that white people were using to get the same sentence. Whoa. So this means that you could have 100 times more powder cocaine than crack cocaine before facing the same penalties under the law. Whoa. Which, yeah, effectively meant that black communities' drug use was criminalized 100 times more than white communities. So another thing that happened is that this war on drugs became a legal way to codify the racism that people of color were already experiencing in the United States. Rather than being overtly racist towards citizens of color, police can now rely on this new thing, this war on drugs, as just an excuse to target people of color. So like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, half of the United States has said they've done drugs in their life. It's a pretty normal thing for people to do at least a little bit. And white people, again, use drugs at the same rate as people of color. However, Increasing the penalties for drug use meant that there was this huge umbrella now that police could use in order to harass a person of color because they knew that if they harassed them, there was a 50% chance that that person, regardless of their race, had used drugs before. So that meant that there was now this new thing they could use if they chose to target a person of color, there was like maybe a good chance they could find something that had to do with drugs on them, right? Because people just kind of use drugs. This became this really convenient excuse. So to really explain why this was relevant, here's an analogy, right? Uh, half of the U.S. population by this point, for example, has had COVID, okay? That's a thing. So let's say you have a political enemy, and let's just say it's steel workers. You hate steel workers. They hate you. You went on TV. You said you want to get rid of all the steel workers. They said they wanted to get rid of you. You're like, we're going to replace steel with, I don't know, like a highly durable resin compound, whatever the fuck. This is your enemy now. They're mad. They're plotting your demise. You don't get each other at all. Okay. Now, if you become president and you want to figure out how to get rid of these pesky steel workers, you could just say, hey, anyone who's had COVID, that's illegal now because you were irresponsible and it's your fault the pandemic happened and you endangered people. So we're just going to arrest anybody who has had COVID. 
Now, this doesn't sound like it has much to do with the steelworkers specifically, right? But suddenly you can stop anyone you see wearing a hard hat. I don't know if steelworkers wear hard hats. This was like not a good example. I don't think that I chose, but you know what I mean? <laughs> you can be like, oh, you got a hard hat. You look like a steelworker to me. I'm going to check to see if you've had COVID. And boom, there's a 50% chance. And now you can imprison your political enemy, the steelworker, because there's a 50% chance he had COVID. And if you want to say, you know, also, well, it's 100 times more illegal to have contracted COVID at a construction site. Now you can put that person in prison even longer. So that's my analogy to really understand how this tertiary thing was very directly a tool of like political oppression. I would use tattoo artists. Oh yeah? Because you could probably see their tattoos. Yeah, that's pretty, yes. You could see it more. The hard hat was supposed to be the visual indicator, but I feel like the tattoos might, it might be better. It was a weird metaphor, but hopefully it got the idea across, right? (laughs) So this is what Republicans did with the black community. Black Americans were Republicans' political enemies, and they found a roundabout way to persecute their blackness by targeting this thing that everybody kind of did. And what happened as a result of this was obviously a massive increase in incarceration for nonviolent drug crimes, especially amongst people of color. Data consistently showed that people of color were targeted and arrested on suspicion of drug use at higher rates than white people. In 1980, before Reagan took office, 50,000 people in the United States were imprisoned for nonviolent drug offenses. By 1997, this number had increased to 400,000 people. Whoa. And another way to look at this is to look at the rates of incarceration in federal prisons, because not all prisons are federal. So those last figures were for all imprisonment nationwide, right? But in 1980, there were just 22,000 people in U.S. federal prisons, and less than 5,000 of them, or 21%, were there for drug offenses. By 1995, the federal prison population had increased to over 88,000, and nearly 60% of those people were there for drug offenses alone. Whoa. And throughout the 1980s and 1990s, drug hysteria really took hold in, like, the public eye. In the mid to late 1980s, zero-tolerance drug policies emerged, and you had people like the LAPD police chief, Daryl Gates at the time, saying that casual drug users should be taken out and shot. Whoa. And this is the man who started the D.A.R.E. program. Whoa. Okay, so Oh, my God, (laughs) Do you want to explain D.A.R.E.? Okay, D.A.R.E. was this program in school. It was basically, like, I forget what it was called. Drug something drug abuse resistance education yes drug <laughs> abuse resistance education and basically they were like they okay first they told you what drugs were and what they did which i had no clue as a kid my parents did not do drugs at all like literally i had never heard of cocaine weed lsd and, but they tell you what all the drugs are and what they do and you're kind of like so it okay you know that um that movie like walk hard like yes. the dewey cox story he's like don't come in here doing dewey we're doing weed he's like what about, it makes you feel good you can't come in here you can't do it it'll make you feel too good yes it's kind of the same thing where it's like it'll make you feel so amazing it'll make you feel so good but if you do it you're gonna die and they also made it seem like you were gonna get offered uh cocaine by strangers as a lot and you have to imagine, I'm like nine at the time. Yeah, we were really little. I yeah. also live in a very small town. So if a person had offered a random nine-year-old at my elementary school drugs, it would have, everybody in the town would have known. Yeah, so basically what D.A.R.E. was, was this situation where cops would come into classrooms and get like an hour once a week where they would talk to these really little kids, like... 
I feel like I was maybe 10 at the oldest. Oh, yeah. We had Officer Kathy. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember our officer. But they would do <laughs> these lessons, yeah, where they would teach you about drugs and they would try to get you to pledge that you would never do drugs. But like Kenna said, they, they accidentally just made drugs sound really fun. So it was a very confusing experience for a lot of kids. I could have gone through, like, a big part of my life not even knowing what drugs were. Yeah, and this program was expensive. It cost $230 million to implement. Uh, It was implemented at a nationwide level, and there was absolutely no evidence that it was effective in reducing drug use. And some people even think that maybe it encouraged kids to try drugs. Oh, for sure. Because, like, you know, like, it's like, sometimes if you tell a kid not to do something, you're like, well, now I want to fucking do it. Right, exactly. So... This was this whole weird campaign, right, to get everybody on board with hating drugs. It was a very, very much an obvious indoctrination propaganda campaign. They gave you, like, tons of swag. Yes. Like, there was, like, shirts, pencils, like, folder. Like, there was so much gear. Yeah, I had cute erasers. And if you, like, answered questions about drugs correctly, they gave you cute erasers. I remember this. Or cute pencils or cute prizes. Uh, I remember they did give everybody, like, they gave everybody the shirts. Yes. And so it's just, like, kids were, I I feel like these shirts, we are, you know, we are vintage dealers. Yeah. We still find these shirts. These shirts are everywhere, yeah. They're so ubiquitous. So if you want to know how effective these propaganda campaigns uh, were in the 80s about making Americans think drugs were the worst thing on the planet and they were, you know, drug dealers were going to murder you in your sleep... In 1985, only 2% of the American public thought that drug abuse was the nation's number one problem. 2% of people were like, yeah, that's it. That's the biggest problem. By 1989, just four years later, this number increased to 64%. Wow. Yes. Most people by 1989 were like, drug abuse is literally the nation's number one issue. I feel like by the time I was like... Uh, an alternative teen I realized that drug laws were really just a way to target like marginalized communities of any kind political enemies of the right and the mainstream power and like I mean in in my small hometown too just anyone who looked different at all the cops would use the cops would use that as an excuse yeah so meanwhile the CIA is still up to their drug shit okay They're waging an illegal war against the socialist Sandinistas in Nicaragua. In doing so, they teamed up with these drug-running gangs. In exchange for the gangs helping them fight the Sandinistas, the CIA was like, look, we'll turn a blind eye and by some accounts even assist you in the smuggling of crack cocaine into the United States, leashing the very crack epidemic that Reagan was using to justify the over-policing of black Americans. And if you want to know just how integrated Nicaraguan drugs were with the American drug industry at the time as a result of this, this cocaine kingpin named Freeway Ricky Ross, who was based out of South Central LA. Oh, is that where Rick Ross got his name from? Oh, maybe. Or maybe that's, I mean, it's a, probably just a common name. Yeah. So he had a crack business and he was like, yeah, I was able to take my crack business just from LA nationwide because I got access to a cheap supply of cocaine from CIA connected Nicaraguan suppliers. Whoa. Yeah. So he knew. He was like, yeah, these guys are connected to the CIA. That's how we were able to get it all. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like Reagan, same enemies as Nixon. Like, Because yes. he was also governor of California. They both were governors of California. I didn't know that. Yeah. That was before my time. Yeah, they both were governors of California. So to me, I'm like, how very convenient for Reagan that all of this stuff that he can arrest his enemies for 
is suddenly flowing into the country by an organization that technically he is at the top of being yes. the commander in chief. 100%. So you have these like veteran drug agents, including this guy, Phil Jordan, who is the former director of the DEA's El Paso Intelligence Center, who says like, yeah, we were repeatedly called off of cases involving CIA tied drug rings. Like Jordan himself recounts charges being dropped on behalf of the CIA a number of times in cases dealing with metric tons worth of drugs. Whoa, that's like the size of this room. No, it's so much. So they would get these big busts and they'd be like, oh, there's like metric tons of cocaine. And then the CIA would call and be like, uh, yeah, you gotta drop the charges. Mm -mm, You can't go for it. Mm -mm." I am still, okay, you know, like when they show like media reports of like when they, they bust like a ton of drugs and like, like guns and money. I am still so impressed by that. Like when they found like, oh gosh, they found like some cache of like so much like, there was just a room full of money, and I was like... That's a lot of money. Even though I don't like money, it's still kind of cool. Okay, I think here's the thing. It's not <laughs> cool that the cops are out copying. No, 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 no. No, we don't like that. But aesthetically as a photo... Aesthetically as a photo... Without the cops there, just a table full of guns and drugs and money, and then it's laid out very symmetrically... You're like, aesthetically? It's like an art piece. It's like an art piece. Like, I can see that, yeah. Well, plus, you just don't see it in real... You know, yeah, you don't see that much money it's ever. Just, it's it's like it's it's fucked up impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The funniest though was when you the cops are there and they're all proud and it's like this tiny bag of weed and you're like you're proud of this and they're like we took it from this grandma. I feel like and you're like what the fuck is wrong? I with feel the like I saw something where like there are these cops standing around all this marijuana that's being like destroyed like in a fire. I don't remember. Oh I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking I'm like I wonder if those cops are high. High as shit. <laughs> um. So. You know, by the time Bill Clinton's taking office in the early 90s, he had campaigned on this policy of treatment for drug abuse rather than just, like, incarcerating people who were caught using drugs. However, within just a few months in the White House, he was already reverting back to the drug war strategies of his Republican predecessors by continuing to escalate the war on drugs. Rejecting, even going out of his way to reject, a U.S. Sentencing Commission recommendation to eliminate the disparity between crack and powder cocaine sentences. In fact, 79% of the growth in drug arrests in the 90s was from marijuana possession alone. Whoa. While, while Bill Clinton was president. It wasn't until 2010, actually, that Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the discrepancy between crack cocaine and powder cocaine offenses. However, even then, they did not equalize the penalties for each drug. They just made crack cocaine 18 times more illegal instead of 100 times more legal. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, super fact. You know what? Okay, don't you remember it was a big deal when uh, Bill Clinton was like, I did not inhale. Uh, I do, actually. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Oh, did, our... did you like my Bill Clinton impression? It was really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like <laughs> that we were on the same page with this. Um Because Clinton's a wild fucking ride, man. All right. So Clinton also rejected Health Secretary Donna Shalala's advice to end the federal ban on funding for syringe access programs, which were a harm reduction effort to protect intravenous drug users from contracting disease. Um, So throughout his entire presidency, basically, Clinton maintained all of these war on drugs policies, but publicly, he still professed to be more left-leaning than he actually was. So in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine just a month before leaving office, he said marijuana should be decriminalized. He was the one putting all these people in jail for marijuana. So basically Clinton was always just like a real fucking trash bag hypocrite guy. Also worth pointing out, this is the thing you were talking about, Kenna. Um, yeah, he did say he smoked weed, but he never inhaled it. And this was just such like a weird take to have. Okay, to me, I'm like, this sounds like a lawyer response. Yes. Also, remember, he said he didn't actually have sex with Monica Lewinsky because he never came. 
He's like, well, I'm going to get you on a technicality. And it's like, bro, you're not getting anybody. You're just fucking weird. Um, Yeah. So. Well, I mean, he did come. But not from the. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to respect Monica Lewinsky. And we don't need to get into the technicalities of her fucking potential. I don't assault. At the very least, sexual harassment. That was super fucked up. Um, So whatever. By the time George W. Bush became president, the public was starting to get really tired of the war on drugs. People were not as into it. Uh, people really thought Bill Clinton was ridiculous for the whole not inhaling thing. Everyone's not so into this. And in 2001, during his mayoral campaign, Michael Bloomberg was asked if he had ever used marijuana. And just to really give you an idea of how over the war on drugs people were, uh, Michael Bloomberg was like, you bet I did and I enjoyed it. People were just like, we're not doing this purity weird thing anymore. So this is a real shift from the 80s and 90s drug hysteria. But despite this growing disinterest in pursuing drug crimes from the American public, the George W. Bush administration allocated more funding towards the war on drugs than ever before. His drugs are John Walters, uh, not to be confused with John Waters, that would be fun though, directed attention to marijuana specifically and launched a huge campaign to encourage the drug testing of students. So it's important to note here that throughout this time, the rates of illicit drug use all remained relatively constant. They bounced around a little, but not anything that communicated some clear trajectory and displayed that the war on drugs was even reducing drug use in the United States. Still, these policies from the war on drugs led to an increase in overdose fatalities and like a sharp increase. So George W. Bush's policies also saw the militarization of domestic drug law enforcement bringing about 40,000 paramilitary-style SWAT raids on Americans every year, mostly for nonviolent drug offenses and often misdemeanors. What? Yes. So by the time Barack Obama was in office, uh, Barack Obama still got to be cool guy, right? He was super candid about doing cocaine and using marijuana. Unlike Bill Clinton, when he was asked if he inhaled, he was like, when I was a kid, I inhaled frequently. That was the point, you know? (laughs) So say what you will about Barack Obama, but that war criminal knows how to smoke weed, unlike the other loser war criminal, Bill Clinton, who didn't even know how to inhale. No, just kidding, obviously. They're both not great people. Um, But much like Clinton, he also did not shift the majority of drug policy funding away from penalization and towards treatment. So he gets to be cool guy president who smoked weed while also still criminalizing weed smokers. While public policy on drug use has started to shift with states pursuing decriminalization of marijuana in particular, these police attacks on civilian drug use, they have stayed the course. 700,000 people in the United States are still arrested for marijuana offenses every year. Disproportionately, people of color and especially black people and nearly half a million people today remain behind bars in the United States for nonviolent drug offenses. And this really goes to just show why people are so over Democrats, I think. Like, all the Democrats get to play the cool guys, you know, saying one thing publicly, but privately, they're doing the exact opposite of everything they're communicating to the public. Both Obama and Clinton get to play the cool guy points by saying they smoked weed and our drug policy is awful, but they're still allocating money towards imprisoning Americans for drug crimes at these astronomical rates and the exact same policy set up by Republicans. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if Joe has done some 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 weed i don't think he has i actually don't think he has either i think he does not know the the term weed is slang for marijuana he'd be like he, he probably still calls it wacky tobacco he probably does call it wacky tobacco yes <laughs> yeah. that is my guess so you know by contrast the republican 
party, they're allocating these huge budgets towards the same pursuit. But their virtue signaling is different. Both these people are virtue signaling to the American public, right? The Democrats are like, I'm cool. I don't mind that you smoke weed in here, but actually they're going to call the cops on you. The Republicans are like, we are not cool. We hate weed. We think weed will make you murder your mother. And they're putting their money where their mouth is, right? And this brings us to Trump. So we were talking about this earlier, how directly tied drug policy in the United States historically has been to xenophobia, xenophobia and racism. Like kind of brought up, it's impossible not to hear the same thing in what Trump said when he was president. He was stoking the flames of drug hysteria in the United States again, calling for harsher sentences for drug law violations and the death penalty for people who sell drugs. What? Yes, he called for that. I have a feeling this man... I'm, this I'm, man has done so much cocaine, I am confident. I am like, for sure he has done cocaine in the 80s. Although people do say that he is also a, a teetotaler. Really? He doesn't drink. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I would guess that Donald Maybe Trump he did. done cocaine. Oh, well, actually, I feel like he could be uh, just a, a non-fun, non-drug user. Oh, I don't know. Um, he did, though, publicly call for abstinence-only drug education, like calling back to the Just Say No policies of Nancy Reagan and the D.A.R.E. program, which, again, were proven to be super fucking ineffective, and all couched in these really racist terminologies, right? He's like, the drug users are coming from Mexico. Like, it's just very racist, very xenophobic, same old bullshit. Still, though, states were pursuing more decriminalization policies during the Trump administration and even into now. In 2020, Oregon passed Measure 110. Do you know what that was? Mm-mm. It's the decriminalization of all drugs. Whoa. Yeah, and this was the nation's first total decriminalization measure. Meanwhile, okay, now we have Joe Biden in office. Now, Biden historically supported all of the war on drugs legislation that ramped up the drug war and led to these heightened incarceration rates, including the 1994 crime bill. He was all over the shit. He's like, yeah, I hate drugs, hate drug users, let's lock them all up. But now, like most Democrats, he conveniently paints a different picture saying it was just a mistake to support those policies and that now we actually need more compassionate approaches to drug use. Uh, And Joe Biden, of course, famously has a son, Hunter Biden, who publicly struggles with addiction issues of his own, which I am not here to demonize in any capacity. But I am here to say uh, that our friend Kelsey's friend, Wheezy, said uh, that she saw on Twitter that people were like, Hunter Biden is our Princess Diana because he's a princess of the people. (laughs) And I just respected that take, you know? Um, I just want to see... I just have to see that right-wing movie that they made about Hunter Biden where, like... Gina Carino, I think that's her name, who was in The Mandalorian, but who got kicked off for being racist in QAnon. Yes. Yeah. And she plays like the secret star. This movie just looks like it was not meant to be camp, but it looks like it could be a camp masterpiece. Yeah, it probably could be. I mean, the right's hatred and demonization of Hunter Biden is just like, they're really obsessed with it. We haven't, on the flip side, seen Joe Biden act on any of his calls to like shift away from old war on drug policies he hasn't he recently did pardon people for federally for uh marijuana drug possession that's good that's good that's again just part of the incarcerated people yeah they said probably it releases around like five to seven thousand people from jail that's pretty good that's pretty good you know it's it's Still, like, I still, I think still, like, Democrats and Republicans both rely on the demonization of drug use just for in their different own political ways. gains. For it's their not own because political. they're probably doing drugs at the same rate that average people are. 
Oh, definitely. Maybe even more because they got money. They have money. They have access to drugs. Yeah. Today, still, the war on drugs costs the United States over $51 billion per year. And uh, for reference, it would cost $45 billion per year to end both homelessness and hunger in the United States. <gasps> yeah. <sighs> so the- I, every time I hear this, I'm like, oh, I've just been like, it lately, I, you know, when you just get like something just gotcha. Yeah. I'm just like, I keep thinking about like, we could just end all this shit with if we didn't have some, I mean, I know it's not easy as just like waving a magic wand, but I'm just like, we have the money to do all this shit. We have the skill. We have the knowledge. Yeah. No, and instead, now we exist in, like, the fucked up dystopia where they're like, oh, we need to raise unemployment artificially because people are asking for too high of wages. Yeah, or, like, uh, yeah, uh, it's just... Despite companies having record profits and CEO salaries, you know, being a hundred times higher than they have been historically. Yeah, it's just, just like... So uh, deranged. It just, it bothers me so much, and maybe other people don't think about it as much but it really it yeah. bothers me no it's very disheartening it's very upsetting it's like if you know this stuff it's hard not to be angry um the result of this 51 billion dollars per year spent on the war on drugs it's a racist system of mass incarceration targeting the political enemies of white supremacy wherein black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men latino men are two and a half times as likely to be incarcerated as white men Today, one in three black men in their 20s is incarcerated in some capacity, and we see this as a direct result of the continuation of Jim Crow era laws and black codes, many of which are filtered through the lens of America's war on drugs, right? We all know what's going on. It's the same shit. So in 2001, the number of black men in prison equaled the number of men enslaved in 1820 in the United States. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. And this is where when people talk about the 13th Amendment, which, you know, made slavery illegal except for as punishment by a crime, it ties into all of this. That that ties into putting more black men in our prison system where there's still a lot of prisoners are forced to labor for very, very low pay, like 15 cents a day or whatever, or 15 cents an hour. I can't quite remember. And then also, like sometimes for no pay at all. And today, 33% of the prison population at the state and federal level is black, despite black Americans making up just 13% of the country's total population. And again, both black and white Americans using drugs at the same frequency and level. The United States is now obviously the world's leader in incarceration. Uh, We incarcerate more people than anyone else and like by a landslide. We have just 5% of the global population, but more than 20% of the world's total prison population. We're number one. We're number one. And this is not normal. Our prison system is not normal. It is horrific. It is a a human rights atrocity. This is a huge amount of people in the prison system. I will say coming from a prison town, like it's not only tragic to the people who are incarcerated. It is tragic to the people who work there. Mm -hmm. It is tragic to their families. Like it is just... It's like a, a very, it's very like, it's not, it's not rehabilitative anymore. No, it's, it's, I don't know that it ever was. Oh, uh, you know, that's what people say originally, like it was supposed to be rehabilitative. Like that's, you, you know, coming from a prison town, you do hear this from people like, uh-huh. oh, well, but then to me, it's just like, it just seems like. Like, I've always thought from my bones being there, I'm like, there's some other things going on. And as I get older, I see what it is. Yeah. Out of all of the arrests for drugs in the year 2005, which is when I was 18 years old, I think, uh, 40% of those alone were just for marijuana. Wow. Yeah. So in the 1990s alone, an average of three 500-bed prison facilities opened each week in the United States. 
and they were filled with inmates convicted of drug offenses. In the year 2012, uh, 1.5 million Americans were arrested on nonviolent drug charges. Wow. Yeah, so meanwhile, throughout all of this, drug use has not really declined in a steady way. It just kind of bounces around from year to year based on any number of things happening in the world. So in 1975, for example, four years after the war on drugs was launched, 30% of high schoolers said that they used drugs. In 1992, it dropped down to 14%. But then in 2013, it was back up to 25%. So it's not like this correlative thing in any capacity. It just kind of bounces around up and down and doesn't really have anything to do with these political efforts. Instead, the price of drugs has just gotten cheaper and they've become more accessible due to this thing called the balloon effect. Hmm. So basically the balloon effect says this. If you stop making drugs somewhere, they're just going to make them somewhere else because newsflash, people like drugs and drugs will always be a lucrative industry. Uh, Additionally, sometimes the war on drugs doesn't even succeed in curbing drug production where it's intended to at all. Like the bulk of the world's opium supply for heroin comes from Afghanistan and between 2002 to 2014, the US government spent $7.6 billion trying to crack down on opium in Afghanistan. And the result was that a bunch of ordinary Afghan citizens were criminalized by the United States government in their own country, which is just fucked up and should not happen. And also in 2013, Afghanistan still sold more opium than ever before. Yeah, funny how that happens. Like, where it's just like, to me, it's like, I'm not, maybe this is a tinfoil hat thing. I'm like, okay, the U.S. goes into this place and Afghanistan was a CIA-led operation Mm -hmm. and somehow they're producing more opium. Yeah. And meanwhile, people in other countries have to deal, you know, with just the United States obsession with drug policy ruining their homes. Like Colombian economist Eduardo Sarmiento Palacio says the U.S. war on drugs led directly to the rise of drug cartels in his country. Yeah. I mean, like you think about with the Contra stuff, like that is like, yeah, that's like documented in like U.S. court or like Congress congressional you, you know, can read about that yes on u.s government websites yes a 2014 study found that there is no evidence that cracking down on drugs actually reduces access to drugs in fact most evidence shows that the more restrictions are placed on drug use the more violence just comes along with the drugs getting here yeah it's like you just think about prohibition and then you get all the old-timey gangsters exactly like hey i see the black market <laughs> nature of drug sales in the united states today means that drug trafficking is just unregulated and privatized and therefore more prone to violence. So in particular, drug trafficking into the country is suspected of accounting for an increase in public decapitations near border towns, uh, the deaths of 80,000 people, the disappearance of tens of thousands of people more. Like the US's war on drugs is also thought to have greatly contributed to the child migrant crisis of 2013, as the United States is like policing world activity uh, and tried to push drug trafficking out of Mexico, drug production moved to the Central American countries and brought with it this increase in violence and crime because like the same effect as prohibition, now you have organized criminal rings who are responsible for it. Yeah, like you, I, I mean, I'm just, I feel like I've just seen a lot of movies about bootlegging. Yeah, and this ended up leading to children fleeing their countries by the thousands and created this massive humanitarian crisis. And many of those children Uh, had to come to the United States, actually, to seek asylum. So a lot of the people who come to the United States have to come here because our policies abroad have ruined their homes. And, you know, basically, this U.S. obsession with making sure its citizens aren't recreationally using drugs has just created a complex black market system to circumnavigate the U.S. military and police, leading to higher stakes, increased violence to get the job done. We're contributing to the killing of people of color in other less wealthy nations in order to justify the imprisonment of people of color in our own nation. 
Additionally, there's also this like increased incentive to sell drugs in the United States for people from other countries because our restrictions, even though drug prices have gone down here, our restrictions still make drug prices higher here than they would be in other countries. Meaning it's just more profitable to bring drugs into the United States rather than trying to sell them somewhere else. So for example, if you have a kilo of raw opium uh, produced in Mexico, it's gonna sell for around $1,500 in Mexico. But in the United States, it'll sell for between forty dollars and $50,000. What? Yeah. And a kilo of cocaine, for example, would be around $12,000 in Mexico. But in the United States, it's around $27,000. I feel like this is actually what economics is for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still, though, you know, the United States is pumping a ton of money and resources into the war on drugs, continuing the original intention of imprisoning people of color and people on the left. And the way the war on drugs plays out, it's like this. The federal government supplies local and state police departments with money, legal flexibility, which is gnarly to me, and special equipment to crack down on illicit drugs in their communities, however they see fit. And then local and state police use this funding from the federal government, as well as the legal flexibility, which again, important, because it just means like you can do whatever you want pretty much as long as you're trying to pursue a guy with drugs. Yeah, didn't like the Supreme Court basically say that like police have no obligation to eat to protect you? No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. So this is like a new thing though where they're like, oh, if you're going after a guy with drugs, like we're just gonna be flexy on the law. And then also again, special equipment, which we'll get into what that means. And they take all this and they are supposed to go after these drug dealing organizations in their own communities. We already know this is a joke though, uh, because often the police themselves are drug dealing gang members in their communities. Like in 2018, an LA sheriff's deputy was charged with operating a large scale drug trafficking scheme, which he bragged about, right? We talked about this too in our um, Google LASD gangs episode. In 2016, a deputy with the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office in Georgia was charged with stealing narcotics from the station's evidence locker. That same year, a former jail guard in Philadelphia was sentenced to four years in federal prison for selling drugs to inmates. Also that same year, two Detroit police officers were convicted of conspiring to steal drugs and money seized during police raids instead of reporting them as evidence. One officer was sentenced to 12 years and uh, 11 months in prison, while the other was sentenced to nine years for that one. So they were actually convicted of that. You know, so the police are not any more moral or righteous than the average citizen. They're doing the exact same shit that they now get carte blanche to terrorize Americans for doing too. Uh, Super, super fucked up. And when they get all this money from the federal government to do this weird, sketchy shit, they are supposed to tackle these really low-level drug dealers first, right? They call them low-hanging fruit. And this would just be people you know, people I know, people I know who just sell a little bit of drugs here and there because it brings them quick cash. Uh, From there, they're supposed to use those low-hanging fruit people to work their way up to the top of what's supposed to be this massive drug pyramid, uh, reaching who they call mid-level management, all the way up to the kingpins. Uh, Now, this funding from the federal level, it encourages local police forces to continue to aggressively tackle drugs in their area because if they don't use the funding, they end up losing it, which creates a financial incentive to just go after drug dealers, even if drug dealers aren't necessarily posing a threat to the community or being violent in any capacity. The federal government has militarized local and state police departments specifically in the effort of tackling drugs uh, through lots of different programs over the years. And this is where that whole thing comes in about the federal government providing special equipment to local police forces. And also what ties in with what we talk about when we talk about the militarization of the police and how that's a relatively new phenomenon and it is absolutely terrifying. 
Uh, so, for example, there was the Military Cooperation with Law Enforcement Act of 1981, which allowed the Department of Defense, the DOD, to share information with local police departments and to participate in local counter-drug operations. So, this act allowed the DOD to transfer excess military equipment, other materials, to domestic law enforcement for the purpose of combating illegal drugs. And if you want to know just, like, how wild this is, that means the Department of Defense for the United States government, defense, is now able to come into your town and assist in persecuting American citizens there for selling drugs to their neighbors or friends or whatever, which is just wild. There was also the 1990 National Defense Authorization Act that created the 1208 program, which authorizes additional transfers of military equipment to state agencies to combat drugs. That was a few years later. They're like, now we need more. Then there was the 1997 Pentagon's 1033 program, which also gave surplus military-grade equipment to police at a local level, allowing the DOD to transfer aircrafts, armor, riot gear, surveillance equipment, and weapons to state agencies. Uh, armored vehicles were also made available for bona fide law enforcement purposes that assist in the arrest and apprehension mission. Well, this, this shit, like, to me, it's like, okay, what happens when you you make police officers, like, military officers, they see the general pu- public as their enemy. Yeah, 100%. They are, they're in a war. You, there's only us versus them. You know what I mean? Like, so this just, like, adding, like, even just adding, like, uniforms, tactical gear, it's like you make them into, like, an invading force rather than, like, yeah, and I'm just like, uh, I mean. uh. Yeah, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, more than $4.3 billion in equipment has been transferred through this program 1033 alone. And yeah, like you were saying, Kenna, this is major. This is not something that should be overlooked. This means that our Department of Defense, our military, has effectively been used against its own citizens within our country's borders. And the increased militarization of local police forces goes in tandem with these efforts, uh, all because they don't want people smoking pot. Yeah. Remember how the L.A. school district got a tank? It's through programs like this. (laughs) Exactly. 100% through programs like this. Yeah, it's just like... Uh, and you know, I'm sure it goes to like it, it that like use it or lose it funding where it's and like you know, military contractors like who is getting all this fucking money because it's like the military is just getting more stuff because they're like, oh, but then we'll give it to the police. Yeah, like, it's, it's Raytheon, it's Northrop Grumman, it's all it's a big fucking like I wouldn't say pyramid scheme, it's like a weird well, I feel like long con inside. Well, I just thing. feel like war is a big money maker for a lot of people, like, yes. it, like. For people at the, like, who are in the system, it is a very large cash handout. very lucrative, yeah. And basically, the war on drugs is now part of the military-industrial complex. Yeah. It's a way to extend the military-industrial complex from foreign enemies to just domestic enemies, i.e. your own people in your own country. Uh, Yeah, and in 2013, nearly $450 million, that's almost half a billion dollars in equipment alone, was transferred uh, between the military and local law enforcement agencies just that one year. So additionally, you know, we kind of talked about SWAT raids. SWAT raids have been on the rise. 62% of them in 2011 and 2012 were for drug searches alone. And again, they were disproportionately geared towards black Americans. And all of this just leads to the increased power of the U.S. police state apparatus, which unjustly surveils, steals from and imprisons its own people for minor low-level offenses, and sometimes even just like the suspicion of minor low-level offenses. 
like, you know, police can conduct civil asset forfeitures if they just suspect a person might have some sort of illegal activity oh, happening, including I read, drugs. Yeah, I read this, like, long article. There was this, like, town in Texas where basically it was, like, a speed... Like, they just, like, they would just, like... There's, like, some law where basically if you have over, like, a certain amount of cash, like, yes. let's say you have, like, 10K worth of cash, they just consider it drug money and can take it from you. And there was, like, a horror story about, like, some guy, like, got, like, $20,000 in cash from, like, selling his house. He was going to take it to the, like, somewhere to pay off his, like, daughter's, like college education and he got stopped they took all the cash yeah one of my friends here in california was stopped because she had her rent money in cash and she was gonna go take it to her landlord to pay rent in cash because she like ran out of checks or something and she's black and the police stopped her and they were like okay so this is illegal so we're gonna take all your money and you have to go to jail now and she ended up being able to get her money back i think maybe she didn't i can't remember but she did have to go to jail just because she had like 800 dollars in cash on her not even what that the much money fuck only yeah. 800 bucks yeah it was her rent it i'm just gonna say i work in the flea market i have had a lot of money on me before and like i actually thought about that one time i was like if i got stopped with this fanny pack of money from the flea market i would go go to jail yeah um especially if you were black yeah 100 percent so there's been several documented cases of this kind of shit happening. Police seizing people's cash or even their vehicles on just the vague suspicion of criminal activity that was never proven. Like in Philadelphia, authorities seized more than $64 million in assets from private citizens over a 10-year period. That's so, so fun. You know what is funny to me? It makes me think that, like, the U.S. is capitalist and private property like only when it's convenient because i'm just like i thought you said that was the most important thing is fucking private property right and yet you're just fucking can take it whenever they want you can just fucking take it yeah now pick one pick buddy. one <laughs> and even with all of this law enforcement usually does not get to that mid-level management or kingpins of the drug world that they claim that they're aiming for right between 1999 and 2007 human rights watch found that a minimum of 80 percent of all drug-related arrests were just for possession not even sales the fuck? So they're not even doing the thing, you know, that they claim they're trying to do. And a 2011 report by the Global Commission on Drug Policy found that the war on drugs has been just basically a complete failure. And this report concluded by saying, arresting and incarcerating tens of millions of these people in recent decades has filled prisons and destroyed lives and families without reducing the availability of illicit drugs or the power of criminal organizations. So... You know, when we listen to all this horrific shit that happens worldwide as a result of white Americans' fixation on demonizing drug use for political reasons and demonizing people of color, it just makes you wonder, like, how does anybody think this is worth it? And how bad would it be to just let people do drugs? And it's true that drug addiction can obviously be a horrible thing that totally ruins people's lives. You know, the way we conceptualize of harm is just interesting and probably needs to be unpacked, especially if we're going to use it on a political level like this. Like, there's two ways we can look at drugs. How much uh, use of them harms the person using them, the user, or how much use of them harms the community around them. And according to data, the most harmful drugs to users... Uh, are probably heroin, cocaine, and meth. Those are pretty hard drugs for you to fall into. They're not great for you. But the most harmful drug to your community and the people around you, it's alcohol. And by, like, a landslide. Oh, I believe that. Like, oh, I, you know, after going to some, like, you know, uh, you know, events where people just get sloshed. And then drive. And it's so common. Or, like, sloshed fight each other yeah uh you know uh, 
I the most fucked up things I've ever seen people do have been like that I was saying before on not drugs but alcohol. Yes, and on the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration's fact sheet on marijuana, that's the DEA's fact sheet on marijuana. It says no death from overdose of marijuana has ever been reported. Uh, yeah, I I would believe that for sure. Yeah. Like, have you seen those videos of people just, like, eating the whole bag of edibles? Like, 200 milligrams of THC no. or something? No. Oh, my God. That's stressful to think about. And they're just, like, they get high as fuck, but... Yeah, they're, they're not fine. Dead. They're not dead. Well, some of the least harmful drugs would be things like mushrooms, LSD, ecstasy, ketamine, and marijuana. Those are also some of the most restricted, depending on where you go. Um, and by comparison, the most dangerous for the community, alcohol, has some of the fewest restrictions. It is worth noting that it's super hard to quantify harm in this way. There's just, like, so many factors that play into it. For example, alcohol is super commonplace, so you might be more likely to drink and drive than, for example get super high on mushrooms and drive just because of the availability and that might skew the data. But even with these difficulties in ranking danger exactly, we do know that two of the most dangerous drugs, alcohol and tobacco, are in widespread use with minimal regulation compared to other drugs, right? We yeah, know that. And, yeah, and I mean, like, yeah, tobacco, I would just say, like, yeah, societally harmful, because think about how many people just have died of, like, lung-related illness, you know? Right. Um, also, an issue that comes from this whole thing is this idea of regulation. Like, does that mean alcohol and tobacco should be more restricted or that other drugs should just be less restricted? And when we think back to alcohol prohibition efforts in the 1920s, remember how ethically efforts failed to kind of restrict alcohol consumption. It led to an increase in crime and gave more power to criminal organizations who now supplied the alcohol. This sounds a lot like what we see happening right now today with our war on drugs, right? Making things illegal doesn't mean people stop doing them. It just means that now their supply is coming from sketchier places. And along with that, we see an increase in crime, an increase in violence, and an increase of accidental overdoses and deaths from taking unregulated substances in uncontrolled environments, all while wasting a fuck ton of money. In fact, after the war on drugs was launched, we saw, like we mentioned earlier, massive upticks in drug overdose deaths. In 1971, there was just one death per 100,000 people in the U.S. related to drug overdoses. But by 2008, this number had increased 12-fold. Whoa. Yes. And a large portion of these overdoses are accidental deaths uh, that are the result of consuming drugs that were just too potent. Um, you know, something that increased regulation and control within a decriminalized system could help maybe protect against. Perhaps most notably, one of the most dangerous drugs we faced in the United States wasn't even illegal at all. It was the opioid epidemic of 2008, right? And that was brought about by pain clinics overprescribing and dispensing synthetic opioid painkillers like oxycodone, oxycontin. And, you know, there's this one place called the American Pain Clinic. Did you hear about this? This was the one started by uh, Chris and Jeff George in South Florida. Mm -mm. Okay, well, this was the place that around this time became the United States' biggest pill mill is what they called it. Uh, and this just kind of makes you wonder, like, if the biggest pill mill in the United States can operate totally legally and above board and result in overdose deaths for so many people, what is the war on drugs exactly supposed to be accomplishing, right? Yeah, and to me it's, like, it's also sad because, like, um, like, some people in chronic pain need those drugs and then they're harder to get because of the war on drugs. Yes, and some findings say that the physical effects of drugs themselves don't show any marked correlated increase in crime at all, 
but the prohibition of drugs creates these huge influxes of crime within the drug market, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, I mean, plus, like, by making something illegal, you're, you, you've just increased the crime by yeah. making it illegal. Exactly. <laughs> uh, in one New York City homicide study, though, only 7% of homicides uh, in the years analyzed were related to the physical effects of drug use. Oh, like, you take a drug and the effects... Like, you eat bath salts and eat someone's face. That is not true. That never happened. Yes, 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 exactly. So, like, if all the things that could potentially happen from you doing drugs and becoming, like, enraged and psychotic, ah, that accounted for 7% of homicides. And I'm sure that's a very liberal 7% that they applied. You know, they... But, but 40% of all homicides were related to illicit drug sales in the system created by criminalizing drug use. Oh. 40% was from just the fact that it was made illegal. Yeah, because I feel like rare, like people will say that... Also, I even with the homicide number being people who cause by drugs, I think sometimes like someone might do a homicide and they just happen to be on yes, drugs. that's why I said I think they, that's a liberal 7% Because they could have just... They probably would have done the murder regardless of whether they were or were not happened to be on drugs. Yes, exactly. And this data, you can see this data replicated in lots of other studies. We see this pretty consistently. So the majority of violent crime associated with drug use is just because we've made it illegal. So legalizing drugs would instantly make our communities safer in terms of like homicide alone. And since we know that the majority of things that happen to people that have negative consequences to the community in terms of harm and safety are from things that are already legal like opioids or alcohol or tobacco. We know that legalizing the rest of drugs wouldn't actually have that much of effect most likely on any sort of harm that people are experiencing. Um, But this is all obviously hypothetical. This is what people postulate. A 1998 study found that increased drug enforcement was definitely, though, positively and significantly associated with increases in violent crime. That is what we do know for certain. Another study from the same period found that variance in drug enforcement accounted for more than half of the variation in homicide rates from the year 1900 to the year 1995, with more drug enforcement correlating with more violence. The International Center for Science and Drug Policy similarly found overwhelming evidence that drug prohibition has led to an increase in crime as opposed to a decrease. Yeah, basically, like, it's so funny because, like, I feel like you can talk to someone who's maybe, like, against drugs, like, you know, and they're like, but they, like, drink alcohol and you're like, well, you know, the reason why, or they'll say, like, the reason why prohibition ended is just, you know, it created so much violence. And I'm just like... Well, that's the war on drugs. That's exactly too. what's happening with the war on drugs, yes. So if we know the war on drugs was an epic failure from like a logistical standpoint, what would be a success? Uh, and I think like the first way to answer this question is to separate recreational drug use from addiction. I think a lot of times people mix those two things up. Um, and I think that it's important to do that because we have to recognize that drug use is just a part of human life. And like other parts of human life, addiction can play into it. Like you can become addicted to gambling. You can be addicted to other risk-seeking behavior. You can become addicted to a lot of things. And that doesn't minimize the adverse effects of addiction. Like I have lost people I care about to drug addiction. I have lost, I've experienced that. It's, it's very, very difficult and it's horrible. Um, but by just viewing all drug use as being intrinsically bad or intrinsically amoral, we're reinforcing this abstinence-only framework that's not realistic or useful for actual human beings. Yeah, like sex education. Exactly. I think you, I, I, I'm 
I don't think abstinence works. No, it doesn't work because that's not how people actually engage with things like drugs or sex in life. Like you need to meet people where they are and have a realistic approach to addressing these issues in society. And I feel like it's a multi-pronged approach uh, to address drug use just as being like a multifaceted part of human life because that's what it is and what it always has been. And I think number one, first and foremost, it's decriminalization that has to happen. Like drug use in general should just be decriminalized. Um, there's this guy, Mark Kleiman, who's a leading drug policy expert in the United States. And he used to really hate the idea of, of decriminalization. He was like, no, like this is ridiculous. Like you have to regulate drugs. Otherwise everybody will just be overdosing on drugs and dying. But he says that the more he looked at evidence, the more his mind slowly changed on the issue. So now he's like, look, what I've learned is nobody's got any empirical evidence that shows that criminalization reduces consumption noticeably. Yeah. So then there's this 2009 report also that kind of looks at Portugal's decriminalization efforts because, you know, Portugal's done a lot of things to decriminalize drug use there. And looking at what's happened in Portugal after, decri after they decriminalized all drugs, uh, people suddenly were more willing to seek rehabilitation programs and treatment for their own addiction issues. And the author of the paper, Glenn Greenwald, found that addicts were not pursuing treatment prior to decriminalization because they were afraid that they would be arrested because they were doing something illegal. Hmm. Today, 75% of addicts in the U.S. receive no treatment at all, likely because of the same fears. It's super stigmatized. It's made illegal. You don't know who you can trust to help you with anything. And also, it's really expensive to pursue treatment for addiction also, issues. Also, I feel like um, talking about, like, the troubled teen industry, yes. like, a lot of the same issues in that is the same in, like, a, the, a, you know, uh, the recovery industry. Yeah, where it's, it's just, like preys it's, on people. It's rife with abuse. And, yeah, it's very corrupt. It's a very scary place to be. Uh, Greenwald explained in this paper, though, about Portugal that, you know, decriminalization actually broke down a lot of barriers to accessing treatment while also freeing up resources to be better channeled into better harm reduction programs. But, you know, again, this is like a byproduct of just fucking shit show capitalism run amok here that we're like, oh no, even our rehab centers are super privatized and for profit and they're not actually set up with like care for the community in mind a lot of the time. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, it's because they like the point of you know the free market capitalism is like we don't have all the services we have are provided by private enterprises for profit and the thing is it's like how how do you do that with a harm reduction program it's not profitable it's not profitable but a promising thing is that decriminalization is actually a really popular idea with americans and more than i would have thought like there's this new poll by the ACLU that shows 65% of voters support ending the war on drugs and 66% support eliminating all criminal penalties for drug possession and investing the resources saved in treatment in addiction services. Yeah, I think most people would agree. Like yeah. even like, uh, I think things are changing, especially with uh, weed being legal in many populous states. Yeah. Like, you know, and I think... You know, chaos hasn't broken out in Colorado. No, definitely with not. With weed being legal. I mean, I think now psychedelics or maybe just mushrooms are also legal. Right. Or like right. in Oregon. like We don't have reefer madness happening in yeah. California because weed is legal. Yeah. Or Oregon or I don't know. any of these other places. Yeah. yeah. I think the second thing, too, is that we need to make efforts to really destigmatize drug use just like socially in society. Because stigmatization is a form of demonization and dehumanization, which places blame on people when recreational drug use or prescription drug use turns into addiction. 
like according to this one article on the National Institute uh, on Drug Abuse, they had this up and they said, the humiliating rejection experienced by people who are stigmatized for their drug use acts as a powerful social punishment and it drives them to continue and perhaps intensify their drug taking. So destigmatization of drug use saves lives, basically, because it creates a space where people are more honestly able to assess their own relationship with substance use, free of complicated feelings of shame and judgment from their peers and from society. You know, I think it's like one of those things where we have to remember that like most people or half of people will use drugs in their life. It's like a pretty normal thing. And, you know, also like sometimes people just do become addicted or do end up in unhealthy patterns of use with substances. And that is a serious thing from a health perspective that we need to take seriously. We need to provide resources for and help people with, but that doesn't, doesn't equate to some sort of moral failing or something. Yeah. And you know, addiction in general, you know, right. Addiction to anything, which we tend to treat addiction to drugs as being the worst. We do. It's like all addiction is harmful by the nature of it being an addiction. Yeah. Uh, The third thing, obviously, is harm reduction, right? That's just the act of keeping people who use drugs alive and healthy while they're using drugs. And a lot of people are really resistant to this because they think it's enabling drug users. But actually, harm reduction is considered a key component of avoiding overdoses and emphasizing engaging directly with people who use drugs in order to help prevent things like infectious disease transmission and keep them more physically, mentally, and socially healthy and well while using. It also offers low threshold options for accessing substance use disorder treatment and other healthcare services, like if people find that they want them. But a big part of that too is like, I'm not gonna shove like rehab down your throat. Like when you're ready, if you come to us, we'll help you. And that's like harm reduction. That's how it works, which is a lot different than these like, punitive ways that rehab is like used as a tool of the state also sometimes to further oppress people. Basically, harm reduction just acknowledges that some people, yes, will do drugs and doing your best to keep people as safe as possible while they're using drugs is like a really desirable and positive thing. And it could just be things like providing fentanyl test strips, uh, which is obviously super fucking important, especially with so many people overdosing on fentanyl accidentally. It also could be things like needle and syringe distribution or safe injection sites, uh, which have been rising in popularity in a lot of places. And we see safe injection sites correlate with lower drug overdoses as a result. It also might be providing medicine like methadone to ease in withdrawals and get people off of drugs. A great example of harm reduction is the group Dance Safe. Do you know about Dance Safe? Mm-mm. Okay, so they promote harm reduction in the rave scene and they've been around for a long time. And they do really positive things, not only with drug use, but also uh, just like with community safety in rave spaces. And it's really non-judgmental and you can go on their website and you can get really fact-based information about drugs that might help you stay safe. Also just like access to widespread drug testing kits alone, that would be a massive step in harm reduction. Harm reduction is just a thing that does save lives. And I think a lot of people have a hard time getting through their head that like, you're not enabling somebody just by making sure they don't die while using. Yeah, that's just like, we we do safety stuff all yeah. the time. Right, step one is make sure someone dies. It doesn't matter if you're enabling them if they've died. You yeah, know? it's just like, you know, uh, I don't know, like I'm sure we do safety stuff in cars, even though we're like, we don't want to, we don't want to put safety belts in cars. People will drive fast. Although right. I feel like I'm, that sounds like some libertarian argument, uh, libertarian probably but that, you yeah. know, I, I'm trying to no, no, say no, something here. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. That would be like saying, yeah, exactly that. Like you don't want to take safety precautions because it'll encourage people to be more reckless. And it's like, no, that's not how this works. Um, the fourth thing I think that's important is 
obviously reframing addiction as a healthcare issue. All of these seem to make so much sense, right? Like science says that addiction is a chronic disease. Obviously it's not the moral failing of an individual person like society conveniently pretends it is. Addiction has nothing to do with a lack of willpower or an unwillingness to stop. So it needs to actually be treated like the disease it is from a healthcare perspective. And from a healthcare perspective, effective techniques to fight addiction do not include incarceration. People are not more likely to stop using drugs after they get out of prison. Instead, uh, reframing addiction as a healthcare issue would mean providing things like detox, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational uh, emotive behavioral therapy, contingency management, and even, yeah, treating with medication like we talked about, um, you know, in the harm reduction section as well. So just really approaching this from a healthcare perspective, which is hard, right? Because in the United States, our healthcare system is fucked too. Yeah, because it's like, fucking expensive everything's shit. expensive and gnarly you know so we have these two privatized fucked up systems but still like the actual most effective way to help people who are struggling with substance abuse issues is through the healthcare model even if our healthcare model we currently have in the united states is still failed and fucked up it's still better than the incarceration model which is more failed and fucked up the last thing uh or the second to last thing i think is just like the ability to have regulation and quality control on drugs Uh, Just like with the prohibition thing, how when, you know, people were illegally providing alcohol, there was no way to kind of control the quality of it. A lot of people were dying because it was really fucked up. But if you have a way to kind of effectively monitor what's in drugs that people are doing, you have a way of making sure people aren't accidentally overdosing because they just don't know what they're taking. So there are advocates who fight for more legal regulation of drugs that allows for like the distribution of a regulated drug supply so that everybody knows the potency, uh, it's free of contamination. And this just makes me think of like the edibles I take every night. Like I come from an era where people used to just make homemade brownies and you were more likely to just have no fucking clue how much weed you were eating. (gasps) Oh my God. Yeah, now I have five milligram little gummies of weed and I know exactly how much I'm consuming and only twice, and I take these every night, only twice have I ever had more than I expected to take. and like that is pretty minimal when you consider how unpredictable edibles used to be in the I past. F- I do I feel like edibles are literally one of the strongest drugs I've ever taken. Yeah, but like now is because, you know, in California it's super regulated. I go to a store, I buy edibles. I know each single dose is 5 milligrams with the exception of a couple times it's been a little wrong, and I eat that and I know what I'm getting. It's just the idea that you know the potency of the product you're ingesting and you can better regulate how much of it you consume. And that's what happens when things are legalized and kind of regulated and monitored. Plus you get cool bud tenders. Yes, plus hot girls compliment your eyeliner when you go in there. <laughs> Um, Also, like, the full decriminalization of the manufacturing, cultivation, sale, purchasing, possession, and consumption of drugs, and all paraphernalia within the drugs would be something desirable for advocates who want, you know, more regulation and quality control. Also, holding drugs to procedures that are, like, similar to other government-regulated consumer goods, like rigorous quality control thresholds, uh, regulations for advertisement and packaging, and also important safeguards and protections like age restrictions, quality of supply, ID checking, things like that. So... You know, you know the age of everybody consuming it. You know what's going on. You can kind of monitor that as well. So you don't have nine-year-olds going in. You don't have nine-year-olds making weed brownies. They are not good at using the oven and they're not mixing the batter well. And then, so last, I think the biggest thing is just like a transformative justice approach. Like we need to create a world where we are the happy rats. 
you know? Yeah. So if we are choosing to use drugs, we're choosing to use it not as a way to escape, like, the everyday torturous terror of capitalism that we're forced to live in and try to survive. Like, we're doing it just because we were like, oh, this would be fun. This is something I would like to do uh, in a controlled way where I understand what's going to happen to me and I'll have a positive experience. Like, obviously, some amount of drug use can be totally fine and safe, uh, especially if there are regulations in place and you know exactly what drugs you're doing. But we also do need to acknowledge that just giving people good lives mean, means giving them less that they feel they need to escape from. Uh, I know myself, I tend to use drugs and alcohol as a tool to escape stress. And many studies have shown that people with mental illnesses like depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, two of which I have, may start using drugs and alcohol to self-medicate. That's definitely something I do. Like when I'm stressed out, that is when I'm most like, oh, I'm gonna, I need a drink. Or, oh, I'm gonna eat an edible. Like just something to take my mind off of the stress so I'm not just in my brain feeling it so much. And obviously, happy people can still be recreational drug users, for sure. But there is definitely like a co-occurrence of substance abuse and other mental health issues like depression and anxiety that kind of play off of each other sometimes. There's this professor, uh, Richard Wilkinson, and another professor, Kate Pickett, and they have a book called The Inner Level. And they talk about um, how rising income inequality and high income inequality leads to stress that can also affect issues like addiction. So in this book, they say, as we have seen, trying to maintain self-esteem and status in more unequal societies can be highly stressful. This experience of stress can lead to an increased desire for anything which makes you feel better, whether alcohol, drugs, you know, retail therapy, or any other crutch. It's a dysfunctional way of coping, of giving yourself a break from the relentlessness of the anxiety that so many people feel. And, you know, I fucking feel that, right? Yeah. That's It's relatable. It's Capitalism has created a world where we are just in this unequal system struggling to survive every single day and who the fuck wouldn't want to break from your own brain in an environment like that like in the end you know the war on drugs has not prioritized the well-being of anybody except for like 12 rich guys in charge instead it's just imprisoned vulnerable populations of the united states built upon a legacy of slavery and white supremacy that's ruined the lives of so many people and in particular black people and other people of color it's contributed to chaos and destruction and murder in other countries and it's cost us billions of dollars in resources that could be better allocated towards fighting things like hunger and homelessness that might actually contribute to people having an increased quality of life. So what all of this makes me think about is a Tupac quote to sum it up, mm. which is, instead of a war on poverty, they got a war on drugs so the police can bother me. Tupac. Wow. Tupac. So what do you think, Kenna? War on drugs. Yeah, it's so fucked. It's just like, to me, it's just like, uh, it... They said the guy Ehrlich or yeah, what is his name? said it. It's like it was because of Nixon's political enemies against uh, black people and the left. left the left, mm -hmm. like, and it, people use the drug war still to this day for that exact you know against black people, people of color, you know, people who are like alternative. Anybody who doesn't fit in with like, the agenda of upholding capitalism abroad. And it's, like, it's not a secret. No, it's not. I think it's really interesting just, like, how much of our drug policy does directly come back to capitalism. Like, when we talk about, like, the soldiers in Vietnam fighting communism and how they all ended up addicted to drugs and the U.S. government was pumping them full of drugs to fight this war on capitalism or on communism on behalf of capitalism 
And then you look at how Richard Nixon had the war on drugs in the first place to uphold these ideas of capitalism and make sure that like black activists and people on the left who were socialists and political leftists didn't gain too much power. That was also his way of upholding capitalism. It's like the CIA getting involved with all these drug contras, you know, in order to also promote capitalism abroad. It's like all of these things, it's like the spider web of ways that U.S. drug policy has always been tied to upholding capitalism. Yeah, and even, like, it's funny because I feel like even now how people are saying, like, uh, 65% of Americans, I feel like even people who are, like, conservatives are just like, what? Like, it doesn't make even sense anymore. But I guess now they have, like, you know, different enemies but that are unrelated to drugs. But it's just like... If you even if you think about it, like let's say you're like I'm a fiscal conservative, the money is being spent so stupid. It is, and there's even this guy. Um, I think his name's Larry Elder. He ran for like some office. Do you remember? He's a black conservative in California. He has like a oh like a talk show. A talk show, yes, exactly. This guy is really Republican, and he even is like the war on drugs is a fucking shit show mess. But in Larry Elder speak, not in my speak, right? But he's like, this is fucked up. This is like a waste of money. This is harming so many people. And you're like, damn, like even Republicans hate this shit. Like everyone hates the war on drugs. Yeah, it really is funny. It's like, it's so funny how like, okay, everybody hates the war on drugs. Everyone hates the way the healthcare system work. Everyone hates- School shootings. Like everyone hates like, housing prices ever you know and it's just like it i feel like more and more i'm like i feel like there's just like literally like 50 people really benefiting from this and like it's just like ah, it's it, it really is just like all the data is there i mean even regardless of the data it's just like like you said, what is it? Like 65% of people have admitted to doing drugs and they're like 50%? 50%. 50%. And 65% are in favor of decriminalizing drug use. Yeah. So I'm going to say that more people have done drugs than have admitted it. Yeah. If somebody asked me if I've done drugs, I'd be like, what's it to you? Fucking cop? Beat it. You know? I'm not going to be like, yeah. I mean, but then I went on this podcast and just told a bunch of people all the drugs I've done. But, you know, statute of limitations. Yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, it's just, it, it really doesn't make a, I feel like just like from, it's, it's. It's not logistically sound. It's not ethically sound. It's not morally sound. Yeah. And it's just like most people, oh, oh, like the people at the very top will always be able to do drugs and like, because they can afford to do so. They can afford to get off. They can afford to get lawyers. It's just this thing where it's like another thing where it's like, these laws apply to you. Not because the very rich people can get off on, I guarantee you, like a super, super rich person is not going to go to jail for like drug use. I mean, this reminds me of a story, which is probably a good thing to end the episode on. And one of my friends told me this story about one of their other friends. So one of their other friends grew up poor. Okay. And she's a girl. She's a cute girl. She ended up getting this boyfriend who grew up rich And one night they were driving in his BMW and they were doing cocaine in the car. And the police show up, police sirens behind them. And she starts freaking out. She's like, we're going to go to jail. Oh my God, there's cocaine everywhere. Like, we're going to go to prison. Like, we're high on cocaine right now. Like, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? And he tells her, like, why are you freaking out? Like, the police aren't there to, to come after people like us. They're here to protect people like us. And she was just like, 
what? Like, because she was so used to being a poor person who was the target of police activity. And to this man, this, like, rich white man in a BMW, he's like, the police aren't here to attack me. They're here to help me. And that was just, like, such a shock to her system that, like, this rich white guy had such a different experience of everything than her, you know? Law, like, what it meant to break the law, how much you could get away with breaking the law. And she told my friend this and was just like, this was the most fucked up experience I've ever had in my life. And like, I don't even know if I can be with this man. Like, this is so gnarly. But he wasn't wrong. The police are not there to stop a rich white guy in a BMW from doing cocaine. Yeah, this is why wealth disparity, I feel like, is so toxic and so important. Because it really creates a strata of society that has different laws, different rules. Different rules governing for them. everybody else. And when the majority of people are under a different set of rules that's really fucked up like it's it it just creates a sense of like i don't know like real unfairness yeah i think that that creates a lot of pain in people's lives like real pain real pain like to be like like how logistically and emotionally yeah like it's like i would dare say that most people's like biggest like like thing that makes them enraged is unfairness yeah it's unjust it's unjust and it's like we know these laws aren't being applied justly Mm -hmm. in the country and i think the thing that's maybe the most frustrating is when you see people who also are not benefiting from the systems fall prey to the propaganda and, and think like well drug dealers are bad people drug dealers you know they're harming people they're leading to people overdosing they're killing people and then you're like the U.S. government's killing people. Yeah. Also, you're being, even if you don't do drugs, you're being harmed by the war on drugs if you're carrying around, like, a large amount of cash. Yes. My friend trying to pay her rent was harmed by the war on drugs. Any person of color in this country is harmed by the war on drugs. Like, you know, I remember one time at work, uh, somebody sent us stickers. Do you remember? Somebody sent us cute little stickers uh, along with their exchange. And um, one of the stickers, you know, said the war on drugs is a war on us. And yeah. that is just something that's really stuck with me, especially somebody who's been around people who made their living in poor communities selling drugs pretty regular. It's a pretty normal thing for people I knew in my life because it was a way to make money and you need to survive. And when you hear people even in Afghanistan who are the opium farmers in Afghanistan who are like, the U.S. military is ruining our life. They're like, I don't give a fuck about drugs. All I know is that selling opium to the United States is actually the only way I can make enough money to, to afford to live and support myself. And it's just like very interesting who we choose to demonize and why and how for what harm. Yeah, because I, I don't think anyone now could really justify the war on drugs. No, no. I, I mean, unless you're, I, I, and I feel like the only people justifying it are, it's like, Right. But then the problem is you have people who know it's fact who aren't justifying it, like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, who tell us one thing to our face and then turn around and do something totally different with policies yeah. behind behind our backs. But I do think that, like, honestly, like, decriminalizing drugs, regardless of, like, whether they're made, like, you know, like, I was just like, I wonder if in, like, our lifetime, if it's, like, you know, you get weed gummies, you just get, like, cocaine mints. <laughs> it goes back to the 1800s. I want cocaine and Coca-Cola again. <laughs> Bring it back. I'm ready. That's the position I'm taking on the war on drugs. More cocaine and soda. I'm already drinking so much caffeine. Let's just get straight to it. Fuck me up, you know? I think that's it. That's the episode on the war on drugs. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us at 
patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $2 a month, you can access two bonus episodes monthly. And also you can chat with us about what's on your mind and give us uh, recommendations for show topics. Oh, but if you don't want to do that, that is totally fine. We're just happy you're here. <laughs>